Fiction writers today have a plethora of options for getting their stories out, from ebooks to streaming video to old fashioned print. But the challenge of capturing people's imagination, in addition to slipping through the ever tightening electronic net in an age of censorship, has made the task of right leaning authors all the more difficult in the modern era. Tonight, we are joined by our good friend, Ethnark, for a special After Dark episode to talk about the speculative fiction, sci-fi, and fantasy genres and the importance they bear on the broader front of the culture war. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time Hello, welcome to Myth After Dark. Tonight we are going to be discussing something that maybe is not for all of our listeners, but I think a good chunk of you will appreciate it. And that is a very 20th century genre, speculative fiction, or science fiction, I guess, if you are a pleb. And we are joined once again by a special returning guest, and that is Ethnark. How are you doing, Ethnark? Hello. Hi there, doing well. And it's a pleasure, as always, it's a pleasure uh, to be on the show. And uh, this is a, a topic that's kind of near and dear to my heart. It's a long time, uh, long time fan of different uh, flavors of speculative fiction. So, so thanks for having me on the on the program. Yeah, it's the genesis of the idea here was actually because we had Ethnarchon. It was something that we had been chatting about after the previous shows and. He really knows a lot about it, and I myself have read a good bit of it uh, when I was younger, and I still read some today. And we have Adam and Hans joining us. Hank is absent tonight. How are you doing, guys? Hey, pretty good. All right. Yeah, same. But a long week, and I encourage anybody to, uh, if you're you know, not driving to work or whatever, grab a drink and uh, relax for a bit. We're going to chat about speculative fiction. So where to get started? I guess this, we're going to do the history stick. So it is, of course, debatable what the first speculative fiction was, the first, uh, you know, in, in written form which novel was first you could toss this around ethnarch do you have any opinions about where it all started i mean uh yeah so some people cite uh the tale of genji because there were references you know to creatures from another world uh, in that um uh, a thousand one nights uh, you know it's being fantasy but i i think probably the the general consensus uh, amongst most uh, scholars who are actually familiar with the genre is that it's uh, Walusi and uh, Samosata. Uh, he was a Assyrian uh, who wrote um, um, a novel, kind of kind of a proto-novel called A True Story. And it actually had a lot of concepts, a lot of tropes that we're used to reading and seeing in our speculative fiction today. He talked about, you know, uh, other worlds and space travel and war and, and, you know, terraforming and, 
and um, you know cybernetic cybernetic life forms. It almost seems like, and and so um, I think that that's probably the first uh, recognizably uh, deliberate uh, form of speculative fiction. And then you know as you move toward, I mean, you can you have these things that are political. Uh, things like uh, Thomas uh, More's Utopia, and people say, well, you know, that was a you know a, a political uh, polemic, but that's actually one of the motivating factors we find behind a lot of speculative fiction is that an author has some aspect of society, uh, whether it's something that he believes is a good thing or is a is a bad thing or something he's not sure about, but he wants to explore it, and so he creates you know an imaginary world and fills it with characters, and plot, uh, and a storyline to explore, uh, you know, these concepts that he's thinking about. And so um, in, in some cases, you know, it's just purely escapism, you know, in some cases it's, you know, the idea is to tell a good story and to inspire, uh, to move the reader. And in some cases it's to, to, to take a look at some of these uh, different, you know, social and societal issues and, and uh, explore some of the consequences of them. And so I would certainly, in, you know, in, uh, in, take um, uh, Utopia, um, I would take uh, The New Atlantis by Francis Bacon, Francis Bacon, for example, and those kinds of things. Uh, but when we get into the modern stuff, um, I, th I think probably the era of what most people today would recognize, you know, and say, yes, this is definitely, you know, science fiction or speculative fiction, is probably Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, yeah. um, along, you know, and then, and then, of course, you have, you know, some of... Uh, Byron and Shelley's, um, you know, stuff, you know, about vampires and so forth as well. So that that group of people in the early 19th century, I think, is for purposes of this discussion, is probably as good a jumping off point as any. And in in the American context, you of course have Twain and Poe as well. I mean, Twain with the Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. Uh, you did mention though, ethnic uh, cybernetics, and I would like to pick your brain for a bit about that, which is. Namely, could you define for the audience what cybernetics actually is? Because as far as I understand, the etymology has to do with the oarsmen, and I think the oarsmen of the underworld in Greek, but I'm not entirely sure about this. Could you please explain this concept? Yeah, it's like to, to control, uh, to govern. It's kind of the, the, um, the, the Greek uh, roots uh, of the word, and it goes all the way back uh, to Plato, uh, to the Alcibiades, um, and what he's talking about in in the Greek uh, there is is to you know the the control, the regulation of a society um, of people, and um, uh, then you know if if we look in in the 20th century, uh, people like um, Ed Deming, for example, who you know he's the guy that came up with TQM, total quality management, um, uh, kind of promoted it, and then. Uh, uh, the idea of you know, Norbert Wiener, um, uh, who was a, a, a mid-century, mid-20th century um, uh, pioneer in the field of automation and uh, uh, com computing technology and those kinds of things, uh, really um, uh, made use of, of that word uh, a great deal in the context of the way we're more familiar with it today, automated systems. And 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 the idea with cybernetics was that it, it would be, there would be like a feedback loop, some kind of automated system that that uh, had sens a sensorium that could could understand its environment, and then had some kind of feedback mechanism from its environment that would alter uh, the actions that it takes in whatever you know the con the appropriate context is, and and you know from there it's it's kind of uh, moved into. I think in the popular consciousness, 
Um, it has to do um, a little bit of, of, of artificial intelligence uh, in the original sense um, that Dr. John McCarthy meant when he coined that term in the 1950s, not the modern, you know, AI that you that you hear about in the, the tech field, which is not, you know, actual AI at all. It's just, you know, automated statistical analysis is all that is. Um, but, it, but, but it has to do uh, in the cultural consciousness with that. Um, and, you know, some people use it in, in terms of uh, uh, informational warfare, you know, online conflict, and, you know, they talk about, you know, cyber warfare, which is, you know, um, a ridiculous term. And, and the people who, if you hear people talking about cyber warfare, uh, unironically, you can be rest assured that they have no idea what they're actually talking about. But, uh, but yeah, so, so, so from that early Greek uh, etymology, it's interesting because it had to do with societal control. And then in the 20th century, especially, we really saw it um, used to denote automation. And nowadays, of course, we have a high degree of automation that's used to exert societal control. So we've almost kind of come full circle, um, as it were, in the, in the definition of cybernetics, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. I find that very fascinating. Now, I would like to touch on, it is so speculative fiction or science fiction, however you please, is in many ways a very 20th century genre. We have mentioned, Ethnarch has mentioned, some of the precedents to this and even going as far back as Lady uh, Lady Marsaki and further back even than that, I think, was the other you mentioned. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that both modernism and the rise of technology, the continued belief in progress are hallmarks of the 20th century. So what do you see as the relationship to the development of the genre, generally speaking? of uh, speculative fiction, particularly in the English language, American context, and technological progress or technological development, I would prefer to say. Right, right. So so it actually, I, I would say it's more of an Anglo-American context, if you'll grant me that conceit. And, and, and the reason I say that is, is because the rise of, of industrialization and automation and, and what we consider to be you know, high technology these days is very much an intertwined story of, of Great Britain in the United States in the 19th century. And, um, and, and I mean, there have been reams and reams written uh, about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, but you know, this, you know, the, the subtitle of uh, Frankenstein is the new Prometheus. And uh, things like you know, Promethean and so forth have become cliches that we just throw out very glibly um, uh, in, in this uh, uh, failed age that we inhabit. But but back then, you know, with a classical education, these things had very, very specific meaning. And so the idea of, of stealing fire from the gods, which is what Prometheus did, and that this was something that uh, ultimately led to doom and disaster, this was a major, major concern. Um, uh, amongst intellectual circles uh, in, in uh, Great Britain, in, in uh, the United States in the early 20th century. And very specifically, this is intertwined with the new romanticism uh, movement um, where um, there, were, there, were, there was an, a revival of Gothic uh, literature with those types of themes and doing things like, you know, building these uh, fake ruins and follies on one's estate in the rolling hills of England uh, uh, to, to, to give it an artificial aged and, uh, um, sort of look. And uh, along with the fear uh, of, of, of what automation was going to do to the societal order, because this is when you start to have automation and things like weaving cloth, for example. 
right? And you get the steam engine and steam power and these kinds of things. And this causes a huge amount of societal disruption um, in, in the UK. Uh, the United States at this time, of course, uh, is, is undergoing a similar uh, type of, of, of evolution in, in parallel and almost someone upsmanship here between the United States and Great Britain. And so the fears that people had about where un, the unbridled use of technology was going to take us um, is is something that it was a, a, a big theme. What was in fact, I would say, part of the main theme of Frankenstein, and and so you know the Shelley and Byron and Mary Shelley and that that group of people represented. Uh, one camp, and they were somewhat philosophically aligned with the literal Luddites, right? I mean, you know, Luddite, again, has become a cliche, but, but this was an actual, you know, social movement uh, in England um, uh, that was dedicated to, um, you know, fighting technology because of the fears that it would throw throw people out of work in the factories in places like Manchester um, and, uh, and so it forth. Was, and then, you, yeah, go ahead. You sorry. see the... Re, re, yeah. Despite the fact, I mean, people perhaps are aware of militia pardon me, Mary Shelley's background being the daughter of feminist. Mary Wollstonecraft was effectively a proto-feminist and her father, uh, William Godwin, was was an anarchist. With that being said, they they did have something that you might say is reactionary tendencies in line with perhaps William Blake's satanic mills. They were able to observe the transformations of the English countryside, and they reacted accordingly. And I think that environmental change or man's re- relationship to things beyond his control that are that are changing rapidly is really at the heart of most speculative fiction, at least most of the best of speculative fiction. And it's not always purely technological. There's other dimensions that exist in this but I, I i would think for example one of my favorites would be Werner Vinge, who as i understand it was actually the one who coined the term the singularity in a paper he wrote in i think the early 90s but his zones of thought trilogy is effectively about the limits of the of man's relationship to technology and technology itself but it it's not entirely technology in the mechanical sense it's also in the psychic sense of the limits of the mind and how far the mind is able to go sure and and, and this 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 goes into themes of, of spirituality and and um, you know the, the nature of, of, of humanity that go back a long time you know if we, we, we skip back a, a little bit in time um, uh, back to you know to to, to Florence and in, in, in Italy we take a look at Dante you know, and and what he did with uh, Inferno, when you know he first of all he wrote it in in the Italian vernacular, and then he constructed uh, this this very ornate. Um, he 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 engaged in what we call world building, right, uh, to to create his conception of uh, of uh, of hell and purgatory, and and heaven. And Dante was was concerned about you know the spiritual. Um, um, health of, of uh, the people in, in, in uh, Italy at, at the time. And he actually, I mean, uh, people believed, and I think that he believed that he was actually essentially writing a third testament, you know, to add to the Bible. Maybe he was, I don't know. Uh, but but so this this kind of societal angst that you're talking about, yes, this, this we see this recur again and again throughout history. Now, a big difference 
In the 19th century, however, is because of all the technological progress that was happening. And, you know, again, we start to see, you know, steam-driven ships, steam-driven manufacturers. Then we get into locomotives and the railroad, right, which is a, this is a tremendously, tremendously transformative uh, technology. And so you ended up with essentially a bifurcation. Um, in in the minds of, of uh, the elite who had the, the leisure uh, to think about uh, this kind of thing. And so you had on the one hand, the, the new romantics who, as you said, were actually somewhat reactionary and, and uh, so forth. Uh, and then you had the others who um, subscribed to what would later um, be termed Whig historiography, um, which is- I the, would the, personally, I apologize for interrupting out there, but I would personally <laughs> lump H.G. Wells in with that category. Very much so. Yes, that, that's very insightful. You're exactly right. And the idea that that you know that that the march of history is essentially you know a, a march of upward progress. And yes, there have been setbacks and so forth. But that you know we keep um, um, you know marching forward and things keep improving. And 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 that the technological optimism that you see reflected. Um, in in people like Wells, and, and I mean, and Wells was not you know a Pollyanna by any stretch of the imagination, right? You know, he wrote about wars and conflicts and invasions and and, and those kinds of things. But ultimately, you know, the the belief that that uh, technocracy uh, would would be our salvation would lead us towards some apotheosis, which then leads us into people like you know Teilhard uh, Saint Chardin uh, uh, in in the 20th century and the concept of the of uh, the Godhead and, and and all that kind of stuff. But but yeah, the, there 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 are those groups, and then there is like a variation of the first group, who um, are very very concerned not just with the effects of the technology itself. And how it's going to affect um, society as, as a whole, but what having this type of technology is going to do? What what potential spiritual, psychic, and psychic damage um, it could actually wreak on the human psyche um, as a whole? You know, and and so there. And this that is, this is a good place to bring up a very bizarre 20th century figure who we have talked about at length and that would be Ernst Jünger who he wrote uh, Ernst Jünger's sci-fi novel The Glass Bees uh, first of all it came out fairly early I mean this is well after Wells I think it was in the late 50s but Jünger from a political perspective obviously is quite reactionary from a certain perspective however he was when it came to technology he actually saw an inevitable if you read for for example the glass bees alongside his book the worker right you can get a feel for the fact that he anticipated technology's ability or inevitable process leading to the absolute dissolution of the individual and right. that this is being something that he would embrace partly because it's the inevitable order of nature and partly because the individual was in many ways a, a hindrance to certain values that he had. Right. And, and, and you know, it's, it's important to understand, too, that the glass bees is not something that you're going to read for the quality of the prose, right? You read it for the ideas. And some, some of these things um, are like that. Um, Orwell's 1984, uh, for example, is, is a, a good example of, of something that you don't read 
for the for the the quality of the prose or for escapism, but you read for the concepts. You know, Aldous Huxley, um, same kind of things. But yeah, um, and 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 Jung, Junger was, I think, quite prescient um, in, in a number of ways. Um, um, conversely, Wells was also prescient in a number of ways. Wells, for example, uh, essentially uh, predicted uh, the atomic bomb, uh, you know, from a conceptual standpoint, and. Um, uh, the War of the Worlds, um, very specifically, um, uh, really uh, kind of prefigured the, the notion of modern technological biological warfare, which, I mean, biological warfare has been something that's been practiced for millennia, you know, in terms of you know, lob, lobbing corpses, you know, via a trebuchet or something, you know. Yeah, right. Um, in, into into a walled city, but but you know um, the the modern modern version of it is something that he presaged. You know, in um, mass aerial bombardment um, is something else. But yeah, uh, the uh, these I I would say the the, the glass beads is kind of a. It, it, it's it, it's almost what I would call, as opposed to science fiction, something like a scientific romance, you know, or something like that, uh, in 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 the the way that it's written. But he he talks about stuff that that is uh, pretty much like you know what we envisage as as nanotechnology uh, today, and that's certainly um, something that was a, a, a very very new and radical uh, idea uh, at that time. So yeah, absolutely. When I read the glass bees, I. I could not help but see an analog between, I think it was uh, Zaproni was the name that he had for the wealthy family or aristocrat that was pulling the strings and the Mustafa Mond figure in Brave New World. Yeah, can't help right. but assume that Huxley had read yeah. Glass yeah, Like a Z- Zaproni or yeah, something. Yes, something. yes. That's exactly right. Yeah. I have a question. Back. I read that when I, was, when I was a kid a long time ago. <laughs> I have a question yeah, it's been guys. years since I read it, too. If I yeah, so, yeah, Adam. so, so uh, oh, go ahead. You guys go ahead, please. Yeah, I had a question uh, real quick, though. There's uh, two Bitcoin donations I just wanted to thank. Uh, and by the way, um, Bitcoin blockchain accounting is a little more convoluted than I had previously assumed. Uh, I'm pretty sure I got this one, but previously there was uh, probably some inaccuracies in how I was thanking the wallet. So if you donated, thank you regardless. But these two wallets that I'm pretty sure are actual wallets um, on the blockchain are 1NDY and 1JMB. Thank you uh, very much. We all appreciate it. Uh, basically, this stuff goes to hosting. I mean, at this point, I mean, we're probably going to be losing our WordPress account uh, as our friends at Rebel Yell just did. So it, uh, it really does help. And we're going to be uh, probably using some of that donation money to uh, try to basically just keep our, our site running. So thank you. Uh, my question, though, and this is something I've always had uh, just you know ever since a kid and not really understanding it, um, but I, I can kind of speculate as to what the answer is, but you guys are much more uh, well-read in this particular genre than I am. So what is the real difference between just general fiction, speculative fiction, science fiction, and fantasy? Can you please... Ethnark, would you like to take this? Sure. So, I mean, you know, fiction, of course, is, is a meta category. It's a, it's a broader category, right? And then we have speculative fiction underneath that. And under speculative fiction, we have essentially science fiction, um, we have fantasy and then we have alternative history and alternative history can have elements of fantasy or science fiction in both. And there's other subgenres, just like, uh, quote, planetary fiction, unquote, uh, authors like Jack Vance and so forth, uh, um, wrote in, but, but, 
uh, it, it's, all, it's all speculative fiction uh, in, in these genres we're talking about. And, and the dividing line between fantasy and, and science fiction is essentially uh, science fiction tends to focus on, on um, uh, more concrete, um, um, you know, physical um, and cybernetic and, and other, you know, technological uh, tropes and, and things of that nature, whereas fantasy tends to focus um, on more on what what would be considered magic. Of right. course, there's always Arthur C. Clarke's you know famous quote about how any uh, sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah. Um, and there are a number of authors who um, you know uh, subvert those uh, those tropes. And, and, and Gene Wolfe uh, in particular really takes Gene. Arthur C. Clarke uh, to the money on that. Yeah, yeah, Gene Wolfe is a, is a great example of that. Um, and some of the, some of the best uh, um, science fiction and speculative fiction uh, that's been written, in, in my opinion, fits in, into kind of that hybrid mode. So, um, you know, if, if we take a look at Edgar Rice Burroughs, for example, and uh, his Barsoom uh, series, John Carter of Mars, and you know, and all, all those books in, in that cycle, those are are kind of have elements of both. Um, in I would always. Oh, I always thought that those were more like, uh, I guess you call them space operas, that uh, he kind of ev- in- incidentally invented that genre, the the space opera sort of flimsy um, uh, technology and flimsy technological ex- explanatory, expository dialogue um, in favor of sort of a science fiction setting for doing a fantasy story. Like Dune that was or something? Right. Well, yeah, and, no, and keep in mind, space complex. itself is a 20th century concept. Yeah, kind of. And, and, and I mean, that, that's a fair comment, but I will say that, that you know, space opera um, can actually have, um, uh, it, which is a subgenre of science fiction, right, can, can have a, a lesser, a, a greater or lesser emphasis on the specifics of technology. But there are a lot of fantastical elements um, uh, in 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 uh, the barstool stuff, and so I mean, you know, people reasonable people can disagree. I I kind of classify that as again as a, a planetary, uh, what I call planetary, uh, you know, romance science, or, you know, planetary science fiction, along with Jack Vance and the Dying Earth, and you know, those kinds of things as well. So you know, we we they're, 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 you can look at it from different. It is broadly speaking romantic literature, and the reason that speculative fiction is. is uh, a, a better umbrella category than science fiction. You take, for example, Philip K. Dick. Yeah, books of alternative history like The Man in the High Castle, or books that are really much more psychedelic in that sense, like Flow My Tears, the policeman said, where the contrivance or the device is not technological per se. However, it is. Uh, I, I don't know if you want to call the mind a technology or not, but what the speculation and the fantastical elements are extensions of the mind or the mind's capabilities, you know, parallel dimensions, hallucinations, what have you. Uh, and Dick is lumped in as a science fiction writer, but very few, I mean, the, most of his works, the central piece is not actually technological per se right yeah, that's right and, and then he mixed some of the stuff up like with the Valdis, right where you know, he's supposedly communicating psychically with this orbiting uh alien uh you know uh, artificially intelligent spacecraft and, and and that kind of thing as well so yeah there, there's a lot of genre bending um that has yeah, gone. And then it, you have to think, 
Oh, it, it genre bends in. I, I forget the the book, but there was one. It's a spoiler for whichever book whose name I can't remember. Where somebody's filling out these like crossword puzzles every day, and like the government wants him to keep filling out these crossword puzzles, and he always wins this prize. And weird shit starts happening. Like he goes to a hot dog cart, and the hot dog cart disappears. And what's in its place is a piece of paper that says "hot dog cart" on it. And it turns out that this is a future where the moon had been colonized and there's a war that's taking place between the earth and the moon. And he, for whatever reason, is able to know in advance like the exact mathematics of the ballistics missiles that are you know, traveling to the moon. And so you get weird shit like this. Uh, sure, reminds sure. me of Heinlein's moon is a harsh mistress in that they had the... The astro- they found a way to, to lump giant rocks at the earth in the revolutionary struggle. Right. Well, right. And the, the, go ahead. I was going to ask, you know, the, that kind of brings me to a point. Who would be sort of the most um, prominent and influential science fiction writers in America? I mean, you mentioned Heinlein. There's, I, I would say Dick is probably um, the most influential. Well, well Niven. Niven, no. uh, what was that out there? I'd argue against that. I, I think doesn't Asimov Dick was very influential. Go ahead, go ahead, Adam. Sorry. No, doesn't Asimov qualify as an American author? I mean, I know he's like Russian or something, <laughs> Russian Jew. But he's but, also uh, Jewish. Yeah, right. But he's he's yeah, he, definitely influential. I mean, you can't get around that. No question about it. I mean, anytime people start talking about AI, I, I robot comes up. The three laws of of, uh, of robotics and so forth. Yeah. yeah so I, Philip K. Dick was was very influential amongst a subset of other influencers, I guess is what I would would was saying. But if you look at, at science fiction more broadly, um, you you have uh, the original the the kind of the first flight group of the more of the the, the harder um, uh, science fiction writers uh, you know, starting in the 1920s. You have people like uh, you know Hugo. Gernsback and Fred Paul and Donald Walheim and you know and some of these guys and then you you end up uh, with a second generation with a lot of first generation guys still around you have uh, 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 people like um, uh, Robert A Heinlein for example and Arthur C Clarke uh, who was British of course not not American but um, one thing is that the the Brit authors of course made most of their money from the American audience simply because of the size. Um, of, of the audience was that much greater uh, than and it was. And, you have the writers from the East, like Stanislaw Lem, who, of course, is also Jewish, but it's a strange yeah, thing. And, because, and Polish, right? Yes, Jewish, yeah, he's Jewish Polak. I don't read a lot of Jewish literature, but when it comes to science fiction, I, I have read a good amount of them. Uh, in particular, Lem and Asimov are probably my two favorite Jewish writers, period. And I don't really know why this is. I perhaps this has something to do with totally disassociating themselves from a country and place and time and able to think about things entirely devoid of those associations, which makes them interesting. Could be. Um, and, you know, Asimov was also a very prolific mystery writer um, as well. Uh, he didn't just write speculative fiction, but of course, you know, his foundation trilogy is, is viewed as one of the foundational, so to speak, uh, um, you know, series of, of grand science fiction space opera. Um, and his his uh, uh, Bicentennial Man, fantastic novella. If people haven't uh, read it, don't bother with the movie. Just just read the, uh, the novella. 
um, uh, very very influential as well. Um, you know, themes of alienation and so forth are are, right. are very common right. uh, in, in a lot of speculative fiction. But there there there's another side of this as well. We've been talking about kind of the more esoteric stuff, right? But if you flip over. Uh, there, there's a whole other uh, other um, side of this that, that's really oriented um, not towards uh, towards the esoteric, but more towards action, and and it still you know can can have uh, underlying themes, but it's uh, intended to to really thrill and, and, and inspire the reader. And Edgar Rice Burroughs, um, you know, was one of those authors. Uh, Robert E. Howard, uh, who uh, of course originated Conan the Barbarian. Uh, among others, uh, was was uh, one of those authors as well. Um, uh, a Merritt, um, uh, and, and there's this whole uh, category, uh, this whole group of, of uh, authors that were called. They're classified as pulp authors. The idea being that you know the the serialized magazines that they wrote in uh, were made out of cheap pulp paper, and it's been used by people who. Uh, academics and, and people who, who who tend to look down yeah, on it's, storytelling. It's, this is a huge trigger point. I've, I've, we've, I've discussed, I wasn't necessarily on this show, but I went on uh, James LaFon's program. We're both fans of the early 20th century weird fiction writers. Uh, and I would take people like Robert E. Howard, Lovecraft, Lord Dunsinay, yeah. uh, well over so-called literary fiction shit of the late 20th century, like Zadie Smith. I mean, people who look that down their noses at these people don't understand uh, a, a damn thing about writing to begin with. I mean, these are right. far superior writers to pretty much anything that's published by a major house in the late 20th century and now 21st century. Uh, it's all trash. Like the, these guys understood how to write and they had imaginations and they had things to say. Right, and, and and there's a there's also you know in, in terms of politics, um, you know the the are some of the early um, writers like you know, the Futurians, which is this group that included people like Fred Pohl and and uh, and the others that I mentioned. They some of them they um, I, Isaac Asimov later on. They, these people were explicitly leftist, right? Uh, they, some of them were literal communists in the 1920s, 1930s, and, and had a leftist bent. And then you had people with a more libertarian, uh, rightist bent. Uh, Robert E. Heinlein, Heinlein, for example, which always was interesting to me. The relationship between Philip K. Dick and Robert Heinlein. Dick was a bit of a you know Bay Area leftist. However, when he fell on hard times, uh, Heinlein was there to support him because he respected him as a writer and as a thinker. That's right. Oh, Mr. Heinlein uh, was was somebody who valued um, um, you know literature for its own sake, right? And he didn't really care much about the political persuasions of the uh, of the writer and, uh, himself. He was he was already uh, the highest paid um, writer of speculative fiction uh, in the industry at that time. Phil Phil you know, had a lot of drug problems and, and, um, his life was very, how, how shall we say disorganized? Uh, he ended up, he owed, owed the IRS a, a great deal of money. He and his wife at one point were essentially reduced to eating dog food out of cans. And, um, Mr. Heinlein got, got word of this and he basically just wrote, wrote Phil Dick a check and sent it to him. And it was enough to pay off his IRS debts. It was enough to buy a new typewriter. You know, and this is back in the age when people wrote on typewriters, of course, and and uh, Philip K. Dick could not afford a new typewriter, um, and and uh, help him keep body and soul together. And uh, Phil Dick never forgot that uh, until 
he died, of course, far too young as a result of his alcoholism and drug abuse uh, and, and so forth. But yeah, and, and there, was a, there was a collegiality uh, amongst people who had different political opinions. You know, Fletcher Pratt, for example, very much a man of the right, uh, who uh, in, in addition to, to writing uh, fantastic uh, military history also wrote some speculative fiction as well. Uh, Fritz, Fritz Lieber, uh, another uh, man of the right. Uh, Paul Anderson, another man of the right. For example, uh, and um, Zelazny, uh, Roger Zelazny, who was kind of more of a libertarian. Um, Larry Niven, uh, man of the right libertarian. Uh, Jerry Pornell, uh, Paleo Khan, man of the right. So you know you have the the, the spectrum, um, and and these people uh, they they tended they knew each other. They would meet at these conventions. This is where you get the idea of science fiction conventions uh, from. They all you know, the, and this is before. You, you know, the concept of self-publishing on the internet because there was no internet and, you know, self-publishing that you paid somebody to produce actual physical books for you, you know, and uh, that that was not a uh, something that anyone really did. And so you had the the, the magazines like Analog Magazine, you had uh, Galaxy Magazine that would, oftentimes they would print um, short stories and uh, novellas from promising new authors. And sometimes they would print serialized novels. Um, as well. And so these were hugely, hugely important in, in giving um, science fiction authors, fantasy authors, speculative fiction authors, um, an outlet that would actually pay them uh, for their work. And there, at, at, for, for the longest time, there were only just a handful, like, you know, two or three um, full-time writers of speculative fiction. And I would say by the, the mid-1980s, there were maybe eight or nine uh, in the whole world, who who, who uh, supported themselves full time uh, via speculative fiction, that has grown uh, because the genre itself has grown. It's become more mainstream, um, uh, and and as a result, and of course, it's branched out and in, into the you know the movies and the television and the online games and all those other things as well. So now you have. Uh, far more, you know, more people, a greater number of people who can do this. But these people all knew each other. They were they were collegial. Even when they disagreed politically, in many cases, they would, you know, they would help each other out and 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 that kind of thing. And this is some fantastic fiction. And one of the things politically that happened starting in the 1980s is that uh, apparently um, this this great stuff, you know, by people like like. Um, um, uh, Lovecraft and, you know, by people like Robert E. Howard and Edgar Rice Burroughs and, and uh, Michael Moorcock even and, and some of these guys was basically almost forgotten in a way and pushed out deliberately because of the, just like every other aspect of Western culture, uh, the speculative fiction got infested with, you know, what we call today, you know, the, the, the SJWs, uh, social justice warriors. And, you know, they poo-pooed all this stuff because it, you know, this was literature that talked about, you know, when men were men and women were women and, you know, heroic deeds. and Right, and, and it and, brings up to mind people like Ursula Le Guin. And hmm. you have, uh, there's something about speculative fiction that is an implicitly politics and history are impossible to escape from it because one very conventional definition especially I, I, I would say American definition of a left and right dichotomy is that the right are people who believe in the ineluctable qualities of human nature so that you have the inability to access the utopia because there are certain things that keep reappearing throughout 
no matter how advanced technologically society becomes, there's certain things like, for example, gender polarity, hierarchy, things that are intrinsic, uh, the corruptibility of man, greed, etc. And you take, for example, one of my absolute favorite science fiction novels or speculative fiction novels, which I reference here and there on the program, is Frank Herbert's Dune. And Frank Herbert, by no means himself, was something of a hardcore right-winger, but he, to use Guillaume Fye's terminology, he wrote the great archaeo-futurist novel. I mean, it, it was a future in which you return to a sort of pseudo-feudal, very hierarchical order based on uh, the, the extent to which technology influences this is entirely eugenic. It's about you know perfecting the higher qualities of man and maintaining a social order that much resembles something like the Middle Ages. And you see this conflict in general between, I mean, this is by no means confined to speculative fiction, but something true to artists in general, where it's not uncommon for artists to create something they themselves don't understand. If you look, for example, at William Gibson's comments on the current state of the world, I mean, it's like, bro, did you even write Neuromancer? I mean, like, <laughs> I don't know if you guys have seen I, I forget exactly what he had said recently, but he, he's somebody for writing what he wrote about a dystopian you know, cyberpunk future, he seems to have a very uh, positive attitude to the direction that Global Homo is going in. Uh, that's just true, and 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 you know you see this in like you said in all genres of literature sometimes, but it almost seems like the author in a way is almost channeling something that it doesn't rise to to the level of consciousness, and that and that's very very true. Um, and, and but the, the idea uh, that. You know the these authors uh, who who wrote heroic fiction uh, and who had other you know underlying themes as well and uh, um, you know were somehow uh, primitive and you know they you know the, these these toxic masculine virtues you know that that they exemplified had to be suppressed. This started coming into the into into the publishing uh, uh, in starting in the, the mid to late. Uh, 1980s, and and again, the, you know, there 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 were a, a, a handful of house of publishing houses that published speculative fiction, and so they had kind of a, you know, control over over uh, what they, they were gatekeepers uh, uh, essentially over what could be published and what couldn't be. And then you have the Science Fiction Writers of America, which was uh, supposed to be a trade guild uh, essentially, and you, know, you had to be a professionally published uh, science fiction author, you know, something that you could point to, and you could join and. Uh, uh, that organization was originally a, a service organization designed to help authors, uh, and including sometimes when they ran into financial distress, you know they could, you know, the community would, of, of writers would would help one another, um, and and that sort of thing. And it uh, unfortunately ended up becoming politicized as part of this um, this um, you know general politicization of the culture. And so these folks kind of kind of tried to, to to write all all of these other authors out of the the history of the literature, and then started doing all this gender bending nonsense and everything else. And so, uh, in kind of in parallel with the gamergate movement, you saw uh, what we call the the emergence of what we call the pulp revolution um, in in speculative fiction, in which which is um, people rediscovered. Um, these early, a lot of the, the earlier authors who wrote great stuff, and and that entire you know genre of, of not just totally dystopian, which great dystopian fiction you know, can be wonderful, right? But that there were other 
other modes of writing, other types of stories to tell. And so this has been going on in parallel with the culture clash that we see in the general culture, uh, you know, in popular culture um, and, and in politics. We see this in the, the realm very specifically of uh, speculative fiction authorship and fandom. And this has been an area in which uh, actually um, we've made some, some great gains for those of us uh, who are more on the right side of the fence, who have a more, you know, as you said, uh, grounded vision of, of, uh, of human nature and who don't necessarily believe in the infinite plasticity, you know, of the, of the human spirit. Um, uh, because of the self-publishing phenomenon with things like Amazon uh, and Kindle and, of course, you know, uh, other, other uh, you know, EPUB in general and, and those kinds of things, we've seen a real renaissance. First of all, a lot of these authors who have been forgotten have been revived, but not only that. Uh, those who had been writing in this, in you know, in these other very positive, interesting, fascinating ways all along, have gotten new attention, and we now have new authors who have come into the genre as well. And in particular, um, I wanted to point out um, in in the late 1970s, this is when um, um, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons AD&D was published. Um, uh, by T.S.R. Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson uh, and, and so forth, and was, which is the last true Dungeons and Dragons, uh, in my view, by the way. All the second edition and everything else is garbage. But in in the in the back of the the, the Dungeon Master's Guide, um, the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide that was published in 1979, there were a, a list of appendices, right? Um, of you know different reference tables and things like that, and Appendix N. And the Dungeon Master's Guide was a list of, of authors of speculative fiction and some of their works that inspired Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson and the other folks who created Dungeons and & Dragons. And obviously they were inspired by Tolkien, who, by the way, was of course a, a man of the traditionalist, right? Um, but besides that, um, there were people like Paul Anderson and Lee Brackett and Fred Brown and Lord Dunsany that we mentioned before and Lovecraft and A. Merritt and Moorcock, Moorcock and, and I would, Jack I would like to, to strongly recommend, of the people you've been naming, I strongly recommend our audience to read Lord Dunsany. He's a, he, I'm a huge fan of his work and he was a big influence on Tolkien as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And so this Appendix N was a page. Um, in, in, in the back of the, of the Dungeon Master's Guide. And so there were some people who had kind of come into Dungeons and Dragons more recently and they weren't, hadn't, you know, they hadn't been playing for a long time and, you know, they'd become like, you know, third edition, fourth edition. They tried their hand at it and they said, you know what, this is stupid. I mean, what am I missing here? This is, seems very solipsistic. Um, it, it, it just doesn't make sense. And a guy named Jeffro Johnson, very specifically, he had, Grown up, and you know, this is all these things I've been naming are things I read when I was a kid, but apparently they've been forgotten uh, since then in, in the more popular culture. But he actually got a copy of, of the uh, of the the original AD and D DMs guide, and he was like, "Wow, I haven't even heard of these authors." So he started reading them, and he got so excited that he made a, a web blog uh, uh, about Appendix N, and then he ended up writing a book called Appendix N, um, and his name Jeffro J E F F R O. Johnson uh, is his name, and I highly recommend this uh, this book because number one, it's a great study of these authors and and what made them 
um, really worth reading. And it's a great reference if you're not familiar with a lot of this stuff. Uh, it, it, it helps bring, bring you to some authors and some works that are, are really um, definitely worth uh, uh, spending time on. And so this kind of formed the basis of the pulp revolution um, in speculative fiction, which has led to this renaissance. And we have, you know, military science fiction, um, you know, is, is undergoing a, a huge upsurge in popularity. We have some great stuff in, in that particular subgenre. And so this is an area of the culture war in which Western values and, you know, the, the values of heroism and honor and courage and so forth have actually, we've been able to retake some of the psychic and societal and cultural territory that you know we have had lost uh, across the culture in general, and so it's a very, uh, very inspiring uh, development. And I'm I'm not surprised by this. I'm not too familiar with anything recent in science fiction or speculative fiction, but I'm not surprised because I think that there's two things at work here. You have certain romantic tendencies that come from. The, the literature of, of Western Europe, you have in much of speculative fiction, you have uh, what is effectively the grail myth told over and over again. And in right. addition to that, you, you have the question of the, the question of progress is being constantly begged as to what it really means. And that's why I believe it is a very politically polarizing genre. And I know that you're familiar with the writer, and I'm sure our audience is familiar with the, the writer Vox Day has been at the front of a lot of these controversies in recent science fiction. I have not myself yep. kept up on it because most of the science fiction, the, the most recent science fiction I read as far as chronology goes was Werner Vinci, and that's nearly 30 years old. So I'm, I am by no means up to date on any of this. But I do know that Vox Day was calling out that mulatto pedophile uh, who wrote that book. Uh, <laughs> pretentious overly written brick of a science fiction novel uh, i forget his name i'm sure you know who i'm talking about ethnark you know, there, there's uh, a couple um um actually and uh, who have been involved in in um uh in in pedophilia and and uh, so so vox day um has been a key leader um, in the pulp revolution and and um he was uh actually um, in the Science Fiction Writers Association, and he was actually president of the Science Fiction Writers Association. He was basically against the rules and bylaws of the organization unceremoniously and illegally, quite frankly, uh, uh, kicked out of the organization because of his political views. Um, because, uh, and because he, in particular, um, there is a, um, uh, an author, uh, um, she, she claims to be an author, <laughs> called N.K. Jemison. Uh, and uh, her, her stuff is just garbage, but it was being praised to the heavens uh, for, for reasons of diversity and uh, political correctness. And he basically um, called her a half-literate savage. <laughs> um, I think it was on Twitter, actually. And uh, they just went berserk and ended up tossing him out uh, of the SFWA, totally against its bylaws. And he actually could have pursued and sued them and maybe even forced a dissolution of the organization. He chose not to do that. But, but what this, the lesson that this taught him was that you can't, you know, you have to take back your own culture and you have to build your own institutions. And so he formed his own publishing house called Castalia House. And he's been publishing some absolutely fantastic um, science fiction and fantasy uh, written by a number of authors, including his own stuff um, as well. 
And conversely, in kind of the parallel world of comics and graphic novels and so forth, you know, this people who aren't fans of, of the comics and, and so forth may not be aware, but it has been totally, totally paused. It has been for years. And actually, in the last couple of Marvel Cinematic Universe um, uh, movies has started to show up a little bit uh, in those um, um, before they finally mercifully, I think, put it to bed, the last one that, that came out. Uh, this year, I forget what it was called. It was um, Infinity War or something. So you mentioned Vox Day uh, and a renaissance being uh, going on in speculative fiction. Would you say that it's it's easier to get a alternative viewpoint out today than it was in the past? Uh, you know, our our good friend James Lafon, for example, is an author and he writes fiction. Uh, as well as nonfiction, and he's been banned from and speculative fiction, by the way. Yeah, he's written some. He's written some of that as well. And a lot of his yeah, his within... best work has been thrown off of Amazon. And so, you know, clearly, I agree that technology allows us to do more than we did before. But I wonder if the political censorship apparatus or culture is stricter today than it was in the past. That's kind of my question. Uh, no. Yeah. So, so the answer to that is no, uh, in my opinion. So, so what happens is you get an, uh, you know, a, a J left, uh, SJW outrage mob, mob will be agitated against someone and they'll go after him and they'll make a big stink. Then Amazon will of course unperson, uh, uh, you know, that person from their platform. There are other platforms that are out there. Um, first of all, and secondly, because you have the freedom to publish because, because anybody can be his own author, proofreader, typesetter, et cetera. Those technologies just simply weren't you know, available before, and now they are. I mean, I have everything, you know, on my laptop right here uh, to produce a complete, you know, a, a, a print ready as well as... Yeah, uh, no disagreement there. Ready. It's just the question of the culture. Are people more willing to allow these viewpoints today versus in the past? Um, I don't know. I don't know. It's hard. I, oh, I no. It, amongst the, gate, the, the gatekeepers, no. Uh, the, you know, the... the you know, Tor, uh, for example, are very, you know, one of the, one of the big ones, uh, for example. Um, and amongst that establishment, no, they are they are you know quite the opposite. As you were kind of kind of uh, uh, getting at here, and you know, the whole thing is infested with SJWs. But there's tons of other people who don't have those views, or or who um, have those views, but have you know run up against reality and are interested in something new and different. And so. Um, uh, with Amazon in particular, um, yeah, you do have have uh, if you get an outrage mob, you know, uh, uh, up up against you, then you have a problem. But uh, and so and there are some limits, I guess. But that being said, there's a ton of fantastic uh, speculative fiction that is available via Amazon now. And of course, you can go to publishers like Castalia House. Uh, you know, Bay and Books have been doing this for 30 years, right? Um, and, and you can buy the eBooks and you know download them and read them uh, in EPUB format. And um, so, so there are more channels now than there ever were before. Some of the big ones, yes, they they get literally censorious from time to time. Um, but but we see more uh, authors who are published who are writing good stuff and doing so successfully and being able to make a living at it, which is really important, right? Uh, than we ever have before. And so, um, some of some folks may have heard me say in other contexts that. Uh, you know, for all the different, you know, travails, cultural uh, travails that we face these days, there's never been a better time to be alive. And I believe that wholeheartedly. And I believe that about the health 
of the literary ecosystem and very specifically in speculative fiction. There has never been a, a better time to be alive and to be a reader because number one, all of these um, um, you know, classic works ha that had fallen out of print in many cases are now available. They're available electronically or even in print if you, if you prefer Dead Tree. And secondly, you have now uh, so many more authors who are writing great stuff that, you know, the fiction that, that is entertaining, fiction that is inspiring, that, that, that actually has a, a positive message that, 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 that actually talks about um, ways, you know, to potentially address some societal problems that yes. would and never have made it past the filter before. If that makes and sense. on this point, Ethnarch, I would, I would like to proffer a brief defense. Of the Some of our listeners may say, oh, this is dumb nerd shit. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's definitely excesses in science fiction and people who get a little too caught up in it. That being said, though, as to the question of the value for our purposes, things we talk about tend to be of a fairly serious note. What is the value of speculative fiction? I would say that the value is that this is a place where you find people seriously thinking about the future. And you see depictions of a future that begs questions that exist today. As to, for example, I mean, if you watch a science fiction film or TV program, one of the obvious things that always stick out at you, always sticks out at me, is, well, why are there Negroes in space? Of course, all of our listeners understand that if uh, man is ever in space, there will be no Negroes in space. Uh, this is an obvious point, but of course, for the you know purposes of the controversies and political struggles that exist within the creative process of the genre, you will continue to see this. But it, it's a place where you have serious considerations of, of effectively Aryan futurism as to, well, if we're going to continue along the line of technology and if space travel, which I, on a technical basis, uh, will freely admit I know nothing about as to how this could be achieved, but it's worth thinking about from a mythological standpoint what a future would look like. Uh, one thing you, you, for example, do not see in science fiction or speculative fiction, again, however you please, is nation states. It's a very rare thing. Uh, for the most part, you have some form of global or, in this case, galactic government that rules. And in some cases, that galactic government or global government is implicitly Aryan in more ways than one. Of course, Frank Herbert's Dune is an example of this. Uh, in other cases, you they pay special effort to doing the global homo shtick. So, Ethnarch, do you have any thoughts about that tendency as far as political organization that you see depicted in speculative fiction, global governments, and uh, sure. very sure. So, rare so do you see republicanism. It's usually some form of totalitarian global governance. Well, and 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 it's not sometimes, and, and it's not necessarily uh, displayed in, in a negative light, and that's something that, that's important to know. Yeah, that's my um, point. Uh, yeah, precisely. Right, right, and and and, and so, um, yeah, I mean, uh, yes, you you see the these, uh, um, you know, logically extending the theory, you know, from from the left side of the spectrum and from the the right side of the spectrum, and uh, in particular, um, I would recommend. Um, 
uh, Jerry Pornell uh, actually uh, had a, a series. It was called uh, um, it was called the Codominium series. And it's kind of alternate. The early parts of it are alternate history now because he started writing this during the Cold War, and the idea was that eventually the you know the 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 West and the Soviet bloc would reach some kind of uh, uh, detente and form a merged. Uh, government and then you know go out to they 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 discovered a, a FTL drive and go out and explore the stars and 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 end up uh, building um, uh, or, or continuing uh, in in some senses their rivalries uh, sectional rivalries uh, uh, in other star systems and eventually uh, you end up with it with it with a a, a, a regional uh, galactic empire um, uh, at the end of the cycle it's worth reading and then. You know, skipping past that formation uh, another thousand years, which would be placed about thousand twelve hundred years from now, um, he, uh, there were a couple of books that he wrote in conjunction with Larry Niven, um, uh, and the one I'm going to recommend if, if if folks have never read any science fiction, speculative fiction, uh, you think it's dumb, you think it's Star Wars or whatever, I would urge you to read this one book. Um, I consider uh, Robert A. Heinlein, Mr. Heinlein considered this to be the finest science fiction novel ever written. It's called The Moat in God's Eye oh, yeah. uh, by Jerry Pornell and Larry Niven. It was written in 1973. Um, Hugo Nebula uh, Award winner back when those actually meant something before they had become, you know, uh, 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 merit badges for, for, uh, for paused uh, SJW fiction. Um, it's a fantastic novel, and it has so many of these things that you were referring to. Uh, these tropes uh, in it. And then they wrote a, a sequel 25 years later called The Gripping Hand. Uh, and those two together, uh, but if you only read one of them, just read The Moat in God's Eye. Uh, I highly, highly recommend it because it is exactly what you were talking about in terms of, of a westernized um, you know, conception of society and government and, and this being what we would end up with if we were, you know, if we were ever able uh, whether whether we do a sublight or whether we you know discover some this magic is, FTL drive either, either this, way. Uh, to, uh, this is a, it's a difficult debate or thing to claim that the genre is implicitly left or right politically because it's a creative space. That being said, there's something always very Spanglerian about when you stretch a time frame out over kalpas over you know centuries upon centuries upon centuries what you always have is a decline and fall there's never the infinite progress and if for from the perspective of a creative work it's necessary in order to give any kind of uh, conflict or purpose to the story so it's not always the motivations of the given authors to whether they're a you know left wing or a right wing or something like this but it's uh, something that comes inherent to the imagination when you're trying to stretch a theme or, or an idea over a span of time and space that's long enough. You're always confronted right. with the things that we talk about every week. If I can offer very, very a, much so. a different analogy vis-a-vis uh, -vis left and right, I think speculative fiction is very right-brained. Uh, and the stuff that uh, I like to focus on a little bit more on this show is a little bit more left-brained perhaps, but I, I certainly agree that there is a lot of value to the imagination and creativity involved in looking forward. Uh, I do not want to live in a world where basically we, we plot out on a protractor or abacus, you know, where our civilization is going to go. That, that's too sterile for me. 
Uh, and I, I do believe that uh, progress is not made in a very linear fashion. I do think there is that Spenglerian element where there is leaps forward and then uh, collapses and falls downward, uh, and then hopefully learning and, and getting better. I think it's a very messy process, and I think it's also more romantic and poetic and, and mythic as well, and, and it, it kind of adds flavor to the human condition. I think that is something I actually wouldn't trade away for something that is much more robotic and algorithmic, uh, even though I do, in, in defense of the left brain, the, my critique of people who just read fiction or focus on uh, fantasy is that they don't have, have the ability to get there. They don't know how to do it. And so you have to do the boring drudgery stuff if you ever want to get to the stars. And those people deserve a lot of credit because it's really hard to actually break down a problem and solve it versus just writing or painting a picture of what you want. It's much more complicated and difficult. However, the people who are good at the left brain stuff typically are not very imaginative. And so it's perhaps a reason why you have a society is that you have these people with different skills. I don't know if you have the, the brains right there is uh, you say left brain, right brain. I'm I don't know sure. if it's actually true, but I, you know, you know what I mean? Which, it's basically, it's a common mean, but, trope. But yeah. I would agree with you. I'd say that, I mean, again, this is the thing that keeps popping up as themes in speculative fiction. It's the limitations so on the one hand, you have physical limitations to growth and development that you see depicted in the Jewish writer Isaac Asimov's great trilogy, the Foundation series, where, I mean, it's fundamentally materialist, positivist, and pro-psychiatric in the sense that man's psychic capabilities can be quantified and stretched out over a certain amount of time, and the, uh, you could predict from that the growth, development, and decline of the civilization. And then from the other Jewish writer, uh, Stanislaw Lem, you have in Solaris the depiction of butting up against the wall of the inner self, of, of consciousness and self-knowledge, that man cannot truly understand the external world and explore the stars and conquer the stars, rather, uh, without understanding himself. And the, these are the types of dilemmas that pop up when you when you extrapolate from our current situation and try to imagine what it would be like living vaguely under the similar social, political, you know, intellectual structures stretched out, out into a galactic time space. I, yeah, I, I think that's fair. Um, uh, it, it absolutely is fair. And, and some of the best hard science fiction that was actually is written by people like actual rocket scientists, for example, or actual computer scientists like Werner Vinci and so forth. And so you actually end yes, up with right. uh, people who actually, you know, Greg Benford, uh, for example, who's an astrophysicist. Um, uh, and, and so you end up with people who have that, you know, hands-on nuts and bolts knowledge of how to physically, um, you know, to, to achieve things and, in, in a practical way. Uh, and who also have an imagination, and so some of the best stuff is written by those people who are who are rare, but there's enough of them that it is worth doing. And you know, and I don't want to 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 pretend this is you know a serious somber business because some of the funniest books I've ever read, some of the some of the most moving uh, emotionally uh, books I've ever read, some of the most inspiring books I've ever read have been in the genre of speculative fiction, and so. Uh, in in the in the fantasy side of things, of course, you know people always they, they go back to Tolkien, um, but I would actually um, go back to T. H. White, um, the Once and Future King. Once and Future which, King, uh, yeah. 
yeah, he wrote Between the Wars, uh, and uh, he basically took the, the, the Mort d'Arthur, the, the, the death of Arthur uh, from Sir Thomas Mallory, and, and updated it. And um, it's a work of fantasy, and it is, uh, it, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, it, it has a, a lot of truth in it, um, a, lot of, a lot of comedy, a lot of tragedy, and it's um, it's really something. Uh, another, this is another book that I would uh, recommend uh, that people read. And you know, when we look at the at the films, you know, sometimes there's just you know, sometimes doing cool stuff or talking about cool stuff for the the sake of cool stuff, that's fun, right? And and uh, we see that sometimes in, in speculative fiction film and, and and in literature as well. And then you know, some of the best authors can combine all of those things together. And um, Robert Robert um, A Heinlein, uh, Mr. Heinlein again. Uh, kind of in, uh, invented the genre, the subgenre of military science fiction uh, with Starship Troopers, which is uh, one of his greatest works and something that's very relevant today. You know, they made it kind of a silly, campy uh, movie, deliberately campy. Oh, I love that movie's absolutely fantastic. The Paul Verhoeven. Yeah, movie. it was great. I mean, yeah, yeah, it, 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 the aesthetic, it's hilarious. right? Yeah. I've always thought of Starship Troopers as the, um, uh, the antithesis to 1984. I don't know if you guys have ever have made that connection, I don't know if it's but the opposite of it. But go ahead. And well, in some ways, it is. It, I've always kind of associated them in my mind as it, mostly it's about framing. It's about how you actually look at society or any of these things positive. But in in the book Starship Troopers, from what I remember, none of what's really mentioned or talked about is is thought of in a bad way. You know, Heinlein sort of emphasizes that these are good things. That there's a there's value in having this sort of um, imperialistic camaraderie, but within and, the, and the, a planetary enemy, right? Within the context of 1984, it's it's perceived as sort of a perpetual nightmare, and it creates all kinds of social dysfunction. But within uh, Heinlein's work, it's perceived as yeah. something that's actually good for social cohesion and good for social function. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if you guys have ever kind of approached it that way, but I've always sort of thought of. A, 1984 being um, one of the better science fiction novels, I think accidentally. Um, But uh, 1984 and Starship Troopers as being good indicators of how framing within science fiction does a lot to tell the actual story. I I think you're right. I mean, mean, the Verhoeven film was consciously a parody of the novel. I mean, Verhoeven. Yeah, yeah, because it's Verhoeven. Uh, Verhoeven, though, is obviously well read in science fiction or speculative fiction. So far as he take Total Total Recall as an adaptation of Opie Dix, we can remember it for you wholesale, uh, which is also a great film. Well, th- this is what I want to say too, because uh, I'm a fan of Verhoeven's work. I mean, Robo- he did Robocop, right? And Total Recall. Yes, he absolutely did. So all these films. If any of you can are, ever snag a copy yeah. of the X-rated Robocop, uh, I highly recommend it. The Criterion version of that is very hard to get, or at least last I checked, it was very hard to get. Maybe these days you can get it easier. But yeah, uh, what, what back I was going to say was a struggle. Um, I consider those to be. I guess you'd call it hard science fiction, relatively speaking for a movie at least. I mean, obviously, you know, books are probably going to be a little more technical, but the the difference between that and I'm I'm struggling to find an example of a of a horrible science fiction movie because I typically don't watch them, but like something with like uh, 
the rock or uh you know one of these stupid battlefield wrestlers. earth the, yeah uh, the, yeah battlefield uh, earth yeah. is one of the worst science fiction <laughs> movies ever made yeah and and it's well, like for, for that me said, Adam, there is a film of speculative fiction with the rock that is brilliant and that is southland tales okay. the richard kelly film and All it's right. a tragedy my, richard my, kelly's my broader, made a movie since my broader point is that there is there's a, a target audience for I, th- I think like these kind of stupid science fiction movies, which I do not consider myself at least falling into because I, I, I cannot stand f- laws of physics being violated on the screen. And this got a lot worse <laughs> course, with, um, <laughs> with CGI that. because they don't have to create the physical models anymore. It's all computerized. And so you'll see things like spaceships, like doing like G force turns that just make no sense. And then the, of course there's <laughs> sound effects, which, also don't happen but you know space odyssey actually was one of the few movies actually get that correct is like that there's no sound in space because there's no atmosphere this is some funny autism because for me like space is an entirely mythic place like it it doesn't exist (laughs) space travel doesn't exist like i don't really know for sure that space stations exist you know Uh i i I joke partly but the point is like it's an imaginative space it's a mythic space where the things that have been uh, they, they've they've seen their way to the end on Earth. I mean, there's no more frontiers on Earth. All the land on Earth is conquered, so space is the natural extension of frontiers, which is where the Aryan in, imagination goes. This is what Aryan man wants. He wants to conquer unconquered space, and so this is this is why it's the ground for so much great work. Isn't that isn't that what they talked about in Parsifal? You know, this is time and space, and you know, this is so it's literally Wagnerian. Uh, Precisely. In, in, in that sense. Uh, Precisely. And of course, 2001 is very interesting. To two thousand, yeah, 2001 Space Odyssey remains the most realistic depiction of space travel ever put on film. Um, but it also uh, contains the single most egregious boner, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, mistake uh, uh, and science, science, scientific mistake. Uh, the zipper. I'm sorry. Are you referring to the zipper? No, the monkey? I'm not actually. Oh, okay. no. Other than that, that's like a that that's a blue, you know, that's a, a, a blooper continuity or no. But the the, the single most most egregious uh, um, violation of the, the laws of physics and in in scientific validity and so forth is on the sequence on on Earth's moon, where Kubrick simply forgot that gravity on the moon is you know what one fifth, one sixth that of um, of the Earth. Uh, and so the scenes on the lunar surface, when they go to find the monoliths and so forth, they're trudging around and everything, just like it's in normal Earth gravity. Um, so he, he totally forgot. About you know, that's, that's funny Arthur too, Clark because he's often accused of doing the film landing hoax. And so if, if that's true, you got to wonder if he didn't know that or if that was intentional. Who the hell knows? But it, that's an interesting yeah. sort of example. It's a funny one. I mean, that's the, uh, oh God, what's his name? Jay Weidmere. Uh, he made the movie about this YouTube film. I think it really was a Kubrick's Odyssey. And it's interesting, though, because they actually made a mockumentary or, you know, pseudo documentary. It was a fake documentary that was about Kubrick staging the moon landing hoax. And his late wa- his wife, uh, his, his widow, participated in this, which was interesting. <laughs> about that uh, but, but yeah the, the yeah the, 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 i get annoyed too 
um, when, when I see stuff that's that's clearly beyond the pale. But, you know, things like, I, I actually enjoy the original Star Trek, uh, you know, 1960s, TL, what they call TOS, the original series. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though it had, you know, this, our five-year you know, mission that only that's, lasted for three seasons. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, but, and, and, and the thing is, ideolo- ideologically speaking, you know, Gene Roddenberry uh, uh, was a new frontiersman, right? You know, that was kind of his, uh, uh, he, he supported uh, the intervention in Vietnam. Um, uh, but he had this, you know, this kind of, you know, universalist idea. But if you, if you compare it to, you know, the later stuff, like the next generation, you know, which is just utter garbage, uh, in, in my opinion. But, but, but it, it was enjoyable. It. And yeah. they did a lot of very interesting things um, within that genre. Um, in the 1960s, on a low, relatively low-budget television show, um, which I think was pretty groundbreaking, and so today that's very synonymous oh, no with question. you know the, the yeah. popular conception of speculative fiction along with Star Wars, is like this duopoly of Star Trek and Star Wars. You know, Steve Jobs, I mean, actually admits that a lot of the ideas he got was from watching Star Trek. I mean, the iPad, for example, is taken literally from a device on the show called The Pad. And it's like, yep. yeah, it's this flat computer. And so, like, the people who, like, give Steve Jobs all this, this credit, I mean, they got to understand, like, he's actually not that innovative. He's just good at selling things. Well, uh, people and, and always gave people. Uh, Johnny Ives all the credit for the design work. Was, uh, that was Steve Jobs' design guy for, like, two and a half decades. Was yep. this uh, this bald British guy who basically came up with the entire hardware aesthetic for uh, for Apple. Right. And and then later the the software he just retired uh, he just left Apple yeah. this past week actually after well, you know close to 30, 30 years um but yeah the flip phone uh, of course was inspired by the communicator mm-hmm. in the original Star Trek and yeah they had this uh, digital you know presumably digital clipboard you never actually saw it but there was also uh, an iPad like device in two thousand basically sorry to cut right, you off. right right and. yeah 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 and then they had the uh, a an iPad like device in two thousand and one. Uh, as well, that uh, Dave Bowman and Frank Poole uh, view the news on. It was, uh, I think it was called Datapad is what it was called. I mean, it was IBM branded, um, and that was one of the inspirations. And then um, uh, Pornell, uh, Dr. Pornell, uh, in uh, in the Moton God's Eye, invented uh, essentially the, the, the modern pocket computer iPhone uh, wireless single integrated circuit touchscreen uh, um, you described all of that in great detail in 1973. So, yeah. And William Gibson of, and Neuromancer anticipated a lot of uh, the internet. I mean, this did not exist yeah. when he wrote it. He did, and he had never used a computer before. Uh, he wrote Neuromancer on a, a manual Underwood typewriter, as a matter of fact. Well, let me ask you guys this. and Let me, let me just pose this question. Has science fiction had a good effect in a, in a general basis on uh, American technological development and American society? This is a good question. That's it's kind of like, do you agree with that. modernity or not? It's kind of... Well, <laughs> well. Let, let's let Ethnarch answer first. I want, I want to hear what yeah. Ethnarch has to say. Um, in terms of, of technological progress, sure, because it's been around long enough that a lot of the technological advances that we have in medical technology, sanitation, transportation, information, you know, the, the technologies that we're all using, you know, to, to have this conversation. 
uh, and later publish it uh, for those who are interested to listen to it, right? Um, were developed by people who actually had, you know, many of them were fans of speculative fiction and were inspired by it. So yes, absolutely. From a societal standpoint, it's a sword of Damocles, you know, or it's a, you know, I guess better, better analysis is just a double-edged sword uh, because Pandora's on the one box. hand, this is, yeah, it gives yeah it gives us all these you know the uh, all the freedom and the ability to collaborate and disseminate information and that sort of thing. At the same time, it's also the instrumentality of tyranny, and and um, the best speculative fiction talks about both aspects of that. So Werner Vinge, for example, in his uh, um, in in his uh, series that you were talking about earlier, um, actually. Um, uh, talks about that in in great detail, and one of the things that he um, says in the second novel of the series, which I'm having an Alzheimer's uh, moment, and I keep this in the sky. Deep news in the sky. Um, he he goes into great detail um, uh, about the surveillance and in societal control uh, of of electronic technology, and talks about how the greatest tyrannies are societies in which all the laws are rigorously enforced. All the time, for example, um, uh, Charlie Strauss, who in real life uh, uh, is is a pretty much uh, he's he's not an SJW, but he's he he's pretty close. But in his fiction, he, he actually his fiction is a lot of fun uh, uh, to read. Uh, in, in, in my opinion, uh, has also tackled um, some of these themes as well um, in in his work, and so he he's annoying uh, uh, in his real world political views, but his um, um, his books are actually um, worth reading, and so uh, he he has kind of uh, uh, talked about that as well. And, and so the best one, the best ones, you know, uh, uh, discuss both aspects. William Gibson, you know, um, uh, did did the same kind of thing, and um, so so it's a mixed answer, you know. Um, and I don't think that it's something that there will ever be a final verdict uh, in that regard because, you know, it, it keeps changing and mutating. And as society moves, the technology moves and then, uh, the technology moves and it moves society more. So I, I don't think there's a definitive answer to that. I guess the answer is both. And it sounds like a cop out, but that's my honest opinion. Yeah, I would I would give a similar answer. There's something we haven't really touched on that I don't want to go too far into, which is the religious question. I understand we have many listeners who are very traditional religious men, and there is a quality to speculative fiction that is highly either atheistic, uh, agnostic, or Promethean. In the why? Why is that? Why? Why? Okay. Again, this is a debate. I mean, there's a lot we could talk about. For example, Gene Wolfe was a traditionalist Catholic of a certain bent. Uh, his series was sort of a reintroduction of the Christ mythos. Uh, it, Wasn't Dick kind of a, at least... Dick was a Gnostic. Spiritual. He was, yeah, yeah, he okay. was, a, he was a, a, a certain type of Gnostic Christian. I mean, in his sort of one of his schizophrenic episodes, he believed he was living as a persecuted Christian in the, I don't know, what was it, like... I, I, I won't say because I don't remember specifically what century. I mean, this was he depicts this in Vallis, uh, which is honestly right. semi-autobiographical fiction uh, and something that had happened to him. So uh, there are elements of science fiction that are inherently revolutionary insofar as the premise, as I had my I, the pieces I put forward earlier, was that it always revolves, not doesn't necessarily need to be technological, but it always involves very dramatic environmental change 
if not in the narrative structure itself as to what the you know what the characters are dealing with uh it's something contrasted with what the readers are living in it's something i i think it is something inherently revolutionary at least it and i personally believe for the most part this is a healthy thing i think it's a good thing that people consider what it would be to live in a different way, to live in a different world, uh, whether to reaffirm values that they have that are important or to discard the values they have that are uh, not worth keeping. Well, yeah, as, as, as long as that revolute, that concept of the revolutionary nature of, of a great deal of speculative fiction incorporates the idea that uh, the revolution in many cases is not secular in nature. It can actually be spiritual, religious uh, in right. nature. And that's something that I don't want to lose, us to lose sight of, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I, yeah, I agree. I, if you look at the uh, various film and television adaptations or original productions, <laughs> Battlestar, I don't really want to talk too much about Battlestar Galactica, but Battlestar Galactica at the end of the day is like essentially a theodicy, right? It's the, the, the reboot, you mean, yeah. Yeah, the reboot. It's a theodicy. Like the this is a spoiler, but the entire device of the series hinges upon the fact that basically God exists. And right, um, and, and, and it was goo- it was very goo goo. The the way they ended it was terrible, you know. But but the series itself, the series itself was, the series itself it was it was a, a lot of fun. It was you know basically you know the lost carrier group in space, right? And, uh, yes, exactly. You know, the, and then it, you get to the end, and it becomes highly mystical and very contrived. Uh, you have religion again. Back to Frank Herbert. In Dune, religion is entirely a political and social uh, technology. It has no other meaning. It, what about there is no, um, the, the Dan Simmons books? Uh, I mean, I okay, I read, that's kind of. I'm glad you mentioned time. this, Hans, because I recently I, it took me many years to finally get around to reading Hyperion. I only read the first one, and there it was mostly. It, so what Hyperion is is a speculative fiction adaptation of the canterbury tales and for the most part it was enjoyable however like i could not get to the bottom of whether dan simmons is jewish or not simmons is obviously a very (laughs) jewish name he denies being jewish and in the books there's a couple things that stand out that i'm gonna just i'm gonna go through them so the galactic space capital is a fucking Star of David, or rather a Solomon Seal is what that actually is for my esoteric <laughs> listeners. Uh, that's, that's what the like, galactic space... And no, no context or explanation of this is given. It's just, oh yeah, but I, don't, I can't even remember how it shoehorned in that, that, that the reader even is aware that that's what it is, but it's a fucking Star of David. Second, there's a... I mean, one of the main characters is, of course, a Jew, and they have like this fucking space Israel where all the space Jews fucking live and the, the space Jew in this case, like is his like daughters aging backwards or whatever. And there's a line in that book that is just like, I, I, I can't stop fucking live. Like I, I, I'm cracking up about it. Even trying to, to paraphrase it right now, which is that it is essentially somewhere like in all of the expanse of infinite space and time and the unfolding of civilizations and, you know, the great cosmos and the, the machine and happenstances of time. Like you have one single fucking constant and that one constant in all of space time is that someone somewhere is always trying to exterminate the Jews. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think you're going to answer your own question here. (laughs) (laughs) Other than that, Uh, yeah, Dan Simmons is just I I didn't like it enough to read. He's a horrible person in real life, just so you know. Okay, yeah, I'm not surprised. Mark, you you took issue when Nick said earlier that um, that there's a big association between science fiction and atheism. Maybe that's more of a uh, a recent development. Well, he but... said it when he said the word Promethean. I don't know if that's the particular keyword. Uh, didn't he, like. Yeah, it was really the the, the religion. So this is this is uh, most stereotypes are stereotypes for reasons because they're true. This is a stereotype that is not true. Uh, it is a deliberate piece of misinformation that has been promulgated by some of those very people that I was talking about earlier. Uh, because many of of the 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 authors of uh, some of the finest speculative fiction, whether we're talking about science fiction, whether we're talking about um, you know fantasy, um, they were re- are religious themselves, and they they have strong religious themes uh, in their works. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Pornell, uh, Niven, uh, Paul Anderson, uh, Tolkien, uh, obviously uh, people like Jack Vance. Uh, um, Gene in, Wolf, in, 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 I'm sorry. Say again. I, I, Gene Wolf as well. I mentioned. Yeah. Again, Gene Wolf again. Yeah. And and so uh, this is this is this is actually part of the the cultural colonization uh, that took place with you know ex- explicit rejection of uh, of any uh, spirituality and you know the genre is really you know people who read you know science fiction are you know too smart for that kind of stuff um, unless they're Jewish. Uh, and then it's okay. Um, you know, uh, it, it's, it has, has been the attitude that has been promulgated, but that's not actually uh, the case when you get into the into the breadth of the genre uh, itself beyond what the gatekeepers traditionally allow. And that, that's what I, why, why I was objecting. Uh, well, and, and especially should, with the newer well, problem. I wasn't off. making a positive claim necessarily. I was just saying that this is a common association. And it, I should was happy be, to yeah. out. it should be said that I, w- I would say that the vast majority of the men who um, laid the groundwork for science fiction were at the very least raised Christian, practicing Christians. Uh, yes. I can think of you know, H.P. Lovecraft as a sort of fanatical Christian, but it's it's. Oh no, H.P. Lovecraft was an atheist. Well, I think in his youth, I remember reading he was. But uh, he was raised. Yeah, he was raised. Right, right. right. But weren't his most people raised? Right. Possibly so let raised. me let me finish. I, I think that it should be said that most of these people who laid the groundwork were probably religious to varying extents. So it shouldn't. I think you're right. It shouldn't be said that just because now there is this, I guess, stereotype that science fiction is associated with basically the population of Reddit. We should assume right, right. that it's always been an atheist uh, employment venture, when that's probably very much not true for the most part. Yeah, I don't think it has anything to do with religion or atheism. I think it's just this is something that people with imagination do. And I've been thinking about how to answer your question, uh, whether it's a, a force for good. I, I think it is, actually. I, I think to live in a society where nobody thinks about other possibilities i would hate to live in that society now whether or not the possibilities that have been implemented uh, in our current society are good or not is besides the point i don't believe you're ever going to live in a society where everything stays the same it's always going to change and i think the job of people is to work to make it better now i don't believe in, in infinite progress i do think things go up and down but i think you always have to strive to make things better. And I think that's frankly what life is about. 
So I think it's a good thing to imagine. This is the reason I mentioned the Promethean as well. It's not necessarily specific claim about the greater order of the cosmos per se. It's just that the subject matter that speculative fiction deals with tends to be the creations of man. Things that man creates, situations, environments that man creates, that get out of hand or dramatically alter uh, the order and mode of human living. Uh, this is this would be the subject matter. There may well be something behind this, and the author himself may believe something else is ordering the greater spectrum of the infinite. But uh, on a specific instance, it's, it tends to be things that are the works of man, and the works of man dramatically altering man's living. Do you think that we yeah. should encourage um, more science fiction working? I know that there's a lot of problems with the field currently, and I know that Vox Day and others have tried to lead a charge well, to fight back. But do you think we should encourage people to to actually engage in this because it could help solve problems? I there's, there's infinite would... numbers of stories of of the military bringing in screenwriters or science fiction writers to war game scenarios. Or war, or oh, you know, develop new technology. Is it worth it to to incentivize? I mean, to that end, I would also uh, point people to the Lem book. His master's voice is uh, topical to that. But I would say yes. I I think that. I mean, this is a subject we've hit on here and there throughout the program. Is that I think that our people, uh, dissident thinkers, you know, Aryan men of good character, uh, need. They need imaginative works that aren't total fucking shit. I mean, I like, I meant to read. There's a book by Ward Kendall. I'm, I'm not going to bash it because I haven't read it, but uh, friends of mine who are listeners to the show are probably hearing this now know exactly who they are. Uh, he wrote a book called Hold Back Day, which is a white nationalist science fiction. And I was discouraged from reading it because I was just told it was utter trash. I would like to see quality works done the problem is that when you come at something from a polemical perspective uh, and you're not given to creative and artistic work independent of you know certain political interests and aspirations you can find yourself writing total fucking shit i mean this is a common situation that happens uh, for all political persuasions and so i it is a difficult thing for like some racist podcasters to encourage this. I mean, it doesn't really mean a lot for us to say like, yeah, go forth and write the next great speculative fiction work. However, maybe there's somebody out there who's listening who actually does have talent and does have some original ideas and knows how to write something that speaks to our struggle yeah. in a way that's not, you know, heavy handed contrived and just like, you know, shitty writing. Well, that's the key word talent. If you're good at it, yeah, do it. That's because that's you're going to make the biggest contribution if you're talented at it. If you suck at it, do something else, please, and do right. what, be the all that you can be. Really, you know, to use the dumb army slogan. But you know, if you're if you're not an engineer, don't be an engineer. If you're not an author, don't be an author. But if you are one of those things, do that. Well, I I think that that uh, you know you as an author, Adam, um, uh, would probably agree with me that the best way to become a good writer is to write 
you know, to try to write as often, you know, every day if you can, as often as you can. And, 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 and read, to, to write, and be inspired by And to read, and, yeah. right, read, read and write and revise and, and keep doing it um, because, you know, you can have all the great, greatest ideas in the world. Um, but unless you can get them pounded out on, you know, on, on pixel, uh, on phosphor, uh, I guess these days, um, you know, they're, they're not really, uh, uh, very useful in, in learning how to, to, to write in an organized manner and express your ideas cogently and clearly, actually that, that process helps you refine your ideas as well and, and to, to, to clarify your own thinking and it has benefits far beyond, you know, throughout the rest of your intellectual, you know, uh, sphere, uh, oh, you know, not, not just, you know, the, 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 the writing itself, but, but, you know, I, my view is that yes, it's certainly something that, that we need people doing. And, uh, to that end, there is a, um, it, it's not quite, um, uh, it, it's more of a, a little bit to the right of Sivnat, I guess I would say, um, uh, but not much, uh, series, military uh, SS series, science fiction series, it's a lot of fun. Um, it's called Galaxy's Edge, and it's written by a couple of guys uh, named, uh, one's named Nick Cole, and the other one's named Jason Onspock. And uh, uh, it's a series of nine, or I think, you know, actually, I think they're up to 11 now, um, uh, novels uh, that are um, primarily military science fiction, but it blends espionage, it blends romance, it, it, bl it blends... Uh, all kinds of, of, of different genres. And the original idea that they had was that, you know, they were like so many people who were fans of, of the original, you know, the three original Star Wars movies and who were so, you know, disappointed with the garbage that first George Lucas and then, you know, J.J. Abrams and these other people um, wrought on, on that whole um, universe. And so they decided they wanted to write kind of like a Star Wars, not Star Wars in a way. Um, but it, it, and they did a good job with that, but it grew beyond that. And it's a lot of fun. Uh, the first book in a series is called Legionnaire. It's available for free uh, on Amazon via Kindle. You can also get it from uh, their Galaxy. You can just search for Galaxy, Galaxy apostrophe S Galaxies, and then second word Edge, and you can it'll it'll take, the search engine of your choice will take it take you there. It's a lot of fun. Um, these guys are men of the right. They're they're not uh, as far right as some, but um, uh, they're they're both uh, religious guys. Uh, they're both Christians, um, but they do a, a fantastic job. They're they're really great authors. And um, Nick Cole, uh, in particular, has written several other books. Uh, some of you may have seen there was a movie that came out not too long ago called Ready Player One. And it was kind of a, you know, 1980s video game, pop culture, you know, uh, kind of uh, nostalgia um, thing. It wasn't very well done. It was written, it was based on a book called Ready Player One by a guy named Ernest Klein, and it was not very good. But Nick Cole also wrote, if you're a gamer, um, he wrote the definitive uh, uh, um, speculative fiction um, uh, book for gamers, and he came out with a sequel to it as well. But it's called Soda Pop Soldier. Uh, by Nick Cole, uh, who, who was one of the guys involved in Galaxy's Edge. And I, I recommend those highly to, to people who are not, you know, um, uh, really that into the genre uh, itself because this, this, the writing is so good that it uh, it can be very captivating and you might find that uh, that it opens your horizons a little bit in terms of what you read and enjoy. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. Uh, I have a friend who I'm 100% sure did not watch Star Trek, or at least to the extent that we may have. Uh, but he commented to me that he, he liked um, Star Trek First Contact, the movie with uh, the Borg basically coming to attack. 
And I always, that always stuck with me because I, he didn't strike me as the type to get into the Star, Star Trek universe. But I'll open that up to, as a question to you guys if you have seen that movie in, in the series and the other movies uh, you know, as well, if, that, if, if, if possible, to compare it to. But why does that movie in particular appeal to a broader audience than it would to a, a Trekkie? Do any of you think? Honestly, I think it has to do with when it came out. It was, it was, it was also the the biggest budget Star Trek production at the time. I think the movie's okay. I mean, I think it's the, the Borg. The idea of the Borg, I think, was was probably you know, I mean, and that's just a, a a trope that goes back to like Fred Saberhagen and the Berserker series and all that kind of stuff, right? But I think the idea of the Borg on the big screen, I think, was was probably fairly captivating. Well, to, to this is about. one of the great ironies of Star Trek, though, is that you have the dissolution. You have the world government, you have the dissolution of the nation states and the geopolitical struggles of the Earth ball. And you have it replaced with a same pseudo dialectic of this like liberal individualism versus space communism. Right? I mean, it, it's bizarre when you think about it's it. It's sort of I mean, incongruent when you really, yeah, when you really spend time trying to analyze society within the, I don't know. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not a Trekkie. I've seen enough material to make this opinion. Um, but basically, that the society, I guess, of Starfleet, let's call it, of the, the Federation, I think it is what it is, uh, is, is like what you're saying. It, it's, it's sort of liberal individualism, but it's this sort of um, weird caricature of the, the United Nations that has sort of pseudo-military capabilities. Um, but instead of addressing threats properly, it, it, they seem like almost totally stupefied whenever there's a new threat or new phenomena, and there's no proactivity. And I, I've never understood if that's intentional, if it's a critique of what this society would be, or if it's an unintended reveal of like uh, what a total nightmare scenario would be to live in this highly um, technological society which depends no on which pro, series no you're talking okay, about. I'm going to I'm going to have to I'm going to have to Star Trek nerd out here for a second because I've people have asked me in the past because I, I have friends who don't necessarily they just think of me as like, you know, a fascist or something. <laughs> they're not wrong. But they don't they're think of you as a Star Trek fan. No, well they they that's the thing. They've asked it's like, "Well, why do you like what about like Star Trek? Like why why, why did you like this?" Cuz I have seen I, shit, man. I've watched. I watched Next Generation when I was growing up, and I watched. Fuck, I watched Voyager. I watched Deep Space Nine. I watched these programs. Like this is my childhood, and I still like them to a certain extent today. And part of the reason I enjoy them is because they're you see some of the most honest and in-your-face contradictions of the liberal mindset present. It's. Like some of it's well written, it's it's just enjoyable camp, but it's there's something very compelling about it in that sense. That's like you see these problems come up that the solutions are so obvious and they make exactly the wrong decisions. And in the case of the so in the case of the Borg, there was an episode. Well, the the Hugh episode, where, right? Yes, Adam. Yes, Adam. Adam shares my my dysfunction here, 
We well, I grew up with that show too, and it, it's like we both. Adam and I had this. this similar. It appeals to I'm my really heart, sorry but not my brain. By the way. If I can answer, I know. The well, ones. our listeners didn't make it this far. To, like <laughs> I, I warned everyone at the beginning. This is this is the After Dark special. Like oh, people who God. are sticking around, hopefully they they understood what they're getting into. So now we're going to talk about Star Trek, and there's an episode with Hugh. Yes, Adam. Ex- that's exactly where I was going. Where it's like they return this guy to the. The, the, he's been individualized in the liberal yeah. process. They, they turn him and into they an atomized him. cosmopolitan. Yeah. <laughs> and they return him to the Borg. And like th- this is a huge fuck up. It, it leads to, to problems. And you find a similar thing with the human rights ideology where there's this like entity that's going around eating planets. Like That's what it does. It eats planets. And they're like, well, we should fucking kill this thing. And it's like, no, no, you can't kill it because human rights, democracy. No, 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 no. Like it, it was it more has... complicated than that. They were going to pl- implant it with a virus that was going to kill <laughs> off the entire right. board collective. <laughs> and Captain Picard decided that that was immoral. Or I think it was Beverly who like talked to him because he's, he's got a... Are they even human? Aren't they like stuff. robots? Why, why is it immoral to kill robots? But they used to be uh, living... Well, it was an organic... It was Implanted with cybernetic yeah. uh, apparatus. Yeah. apparatus. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's genocide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but again, this is the, the point I'm getting at. It's like, this will make Star Trek... Star Trek fascinating to this day. It's like you watch this and you see them. But they, they made it a, the... a conflict. It was it was not like it was like they were trying to make it like this is the only choice. Slavery bad. But, you know, it wasn't this robotic neoliberalism crap. It was they were debating this. So I thought it was a good episode because they were, well, they were legitimately even at trying the basic to this part. Out. I mean, so this is the thing about speculative fiction. It draws out the implications of ideologies and forms right. of human political exactly. organization and like star trek is the the ultimate liberal speculative fiction and it shows bare so many of these conflicts at the very root of star trek like you have the prime directive they're supposed to not intervene and the entire star trek series is about them going around and intervening in the course <laughs> of other civilizations <laughs> well let me ask this let me, let me let me ask this has star trek in uh, the later Star Trek stuff, uh, TNG, and then the twenty other series, and whatever the newest, the STD version that's out now. Yeah, it's, it's literally <laughs> uh, STD, STD, which is hilarious. Yeah. Um, you know, oh ha- have they had? And again, I'm going to pose this to Ethnarch first. Have they had a bad influence on uh, science fiction culture? Oh yeah, the the latter ones. Uh, of course. Yeah, uh, there, there's no. This question. is our red letter um, media moment. Like this is where we. We did the, the mic. <laughs> Sorry, my yeah. mind was, was kind of cynical, though. It was not like that was the big contrast. Well, Deep Rod, okay, but Adam Roddenberry died. Like Deep Space Nine was yeah. after Roddenberry died. Yeah, no, I know, yeah. but it, you have to account for it. I mean, it was it was a long running series. Uh, yeah, well, then that's when they bring in like the interpersonal romance. I mean, it's full of like uh, interspecies miscegenation. Yeah, there's there's yeah. stuff like that, but you also have like people like uh, Garrick, you know, who's basically this uh, intelligence. Well, Garrick officer. is the best. Is the best character. Yeah, and you know, Worf and all these. 
sort of different perspectives. It's basically, it's kind of like a, the Star Trek Babylon 5. If anybody ever watched that, it was basically a meeting of all the different species and how they're different and how they don't actually all get along and how they actually sometimes do need to form these temporary alliances, but they usually crumble and they only work. Is that what it's called? Babylon? Is yeah, that right? that's, mm-hmm. Tower yeah. Babylon. Yeah, exactly. It, it, that is the case. And uh, that's what, again, Adam, that's what's interesting is that we take that that universe that they created and you keep stretching it out further. And now, now you have Roddenberry's, you, you remove the various Roddenberry rules about like how, how you can depict this. You start mm-hmm. to see its consequences because that that's where, the, where do they find conflict? Where do you find the driving force of the plot? Well, you encounter this, you know, hyper militaristic hierarchical civilization and you have race war happening within your own, uh, civilizational order, all these things that you had built up, all the utopian promises, they started to collapse in order to serve a narrative. Um, it, it and explore further what the how far they're willing to go to own up to the principles that they're supposed to represent. Does, and does you the, black, your black commander Cisco, of course. Yeah, yeah. Does Star <laughs> Trek rep- represent in in your guys' minds? Um, part of this infantilization of science fiction becoming not mm. only dumber but weaker and, and less no. less focused on consequences. They, they, they were it definitely represents fair, the progress myth at its at its foremost. I mean, it, it not there's more behind it too. I've never been able to really get to the bottom of it. But Roddenberry was a member of an occult society. Oh, I believe it was called the Order of the Nine. I don't really know a lot about this, so I can't talk about it. But there is behind it, uh, behind the utopian optimism, there probably is a, a darker reality as to what he was really up to in his own mind, what he was trying to create. Um, I, I will say that that um, uh, of the newer stuff, um, there was well. So in the original series, one of the best episodes, in my opinion. Um, was an episode called Mirror Mirror, where the the Enterprise, oh, yeah. uh, uh, you know, they're, they're, uh, some of the crew the evil transport accident. They're, they're, yeah, they, they go into a into into a mirror universe, and it's the the ISS Enterprise, the Imperial Starship Enterprise, and <laughs> advancement. It's you know uh, is achieved by you know assassinating your superior officers and stuff like this, and uh, that was a lot of fun. And there was a two episode arc of. Uh, a, it was a prequel series called Enterprise. Uh, it only ran for a season or two, but there was a two. No, it uh, ran for two, at least three, uh, I believe. Oh, three. Maybe, well, maybe so. Oh, well, three that's, or four. That's four, one of them. Scott Bakula from uh, Quantum yeah, Leap. Quantum Leap. I think it went for four actually. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so there was a two arc, two episode arc called In a Mirror Darkly that was set in that same mirror universe, and it was fantastic. Uh, they, they, the writing was great. Uh, the callbacks, the original show, uh, original um, ships and uniforms was great. And the other thing, this sounds crazy, but the title sequence that they created for those two episodes, oh, yeah. part one and part That's two right. mm-hmm. of In a Mirror Darkly, was a fantastic title sequence. It was just absolutely uh, amazing. Well, was um, it the so Nazis one? I mean, that, that was the whole shtick right? well, yeah well yeah from the roman empire on forward yeah it was a you know a completely different uh and you know diff- different vision of of uh, the evolution right. of of uh, uh western political thought mm-hmm. uh and and it was uh just the if you if you were if you were 
like the original series and, and like the original Mirror Mirror episode, all the callbacks and so forth were great and the way that they took that story and extrapolated on it further were great. Um, it was great in and of itself and it was a very t- tightly uh, written set of episodes that uh, were very plausible, that had internal logic, that had you know realistic um, character interactions and that sort of thing. And and uh, then the, the, that t- the title sequence. So I recommend that to folks if they haven't had a chance to watch it. But Hans, your question was: Did did Star Trek assist in the dumbing down of the genre? I mean, well, I, I, not just dumbing down, but in turning the genre into a much more coddled culture. Where I think a yeah. lot of newer science fiction, again, represents the the idealizations of Reddit, and it's it's very much rooted in not wanting to have to deal with consequences, not mm. wanting to have to take, I guess, uh, what what is the space version of geopolitics, galactic geopolitics, seriously, not thinking about very basic um, physical constraints. To me, it, the later Star Trek stuff kind of coincides with science fiction becoming not only this sort of atheist enterprise, but also very geeky and very um, consequence-free. So, yeah, I, I yes and no. That's, that's what you're it. I, I know that I, I know that a number of our listeners are probably fans of Warhammer 40k. I know nothing about Warhammer 40k, really, except for what uh, friends of mine have explained to me. And it sounds like basically the anti-Star Trek. It's, you have a hyper-eugenic future of like total war and uh, hierarchy and this kind of thing. I think it's kind of a cross-genre thing, too. I think there are some fantastical elements involved in it as well, if I understand. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, again, I'm not an expert. Well, I don't know. What I'm, I want to say about but... Star Trek, I, I agree with Hans in the sense that the, I, I think the, the culture and the politics that they represent is a very utopian, very idealistic, not very realistic portrayal of human society at, at the very least. However, they do contrast it was... a lot with alien species. And the last thing I'll say is that to the technical degrees of what constraints they have, aside from the fact that they have sound, and because it, it is a television show, they want to make it interesting for people in space. I do think they did go to some pretty great lengths to try to make it uh, somewhat hard science fiction. Uh, I, I'm an own, owner of the, the Star Trek technical manual guide to the Star Trek Enterprise, <laughs> and that Jesus book Christ, is Adam. pretty pretty detailed into how... Adam is braver than out. the troops. Just gonna uh, say that. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, it's the, just, the original it's just Star Trek a lot of thought came into this out stuff. Like 1974 it is, 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 is that the one joke. you're talking about? Adam is the 1974. No, no, no. This is uh, the generation one, and it, it's Michael Okuda's uh, kind of like uh, brainchild because he braver was braver than the advisor. troops, man. <laughs> um, but, anyway, okay, so I take I, my point back. I can't believe you admit you're gonna make manual then i i take yeah. my point back no i had it as a kid <laughs> i mean you know i used to like to draw and so i would draw you know like diagrams of of uh you know engineering things basically airplanes and stuff like that and so it was um it was a great book because it gave me a lot of ideas and basically it talked about propulsion systems faster than light drive like what is the energy requirements to get up to it so my, all i'm saying is it, it is not a uh Dwayne the Rock Johnson version of space. It is basically they have guys who know a little bit about physics and they've put a lot of thought into how they designed the sets and everything like that. 
but in terms of the politics, yeah, I, I think the politics are, are not very grounded, uh, frankly. So, but that, that's yeah, but the point it, of the show. It is, it, it's like, it is it's also hard very much fiction. older like liberalism rather than the, the new uh, 21st century liberalism. I mean, obviously, in the new 21st century liberalism, you could not have a white man as the captain of the ship. It's as simple as that. This is their version. Yeah, but so 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 the, the Star Trek in general has had an effect, definitely, on on the neoliberal uh, project because, I, in fact, Doug Douglas Copeland wrote a seminal article in Wired magazine. I want to say in the early. 1990s, if I remember correctly, that essentially the, you know, the the, the vision of the neoliberal world order uh, boiled down to mom, apple pie, and the United Federation of Planets. Uh, and so, from from a popular cultural standpoint, I think that, that Star Trek uh, has in fact had a uh, uh, an effect, and and not a, a very good. In the original, I mean, the original Star Trek series had the the first interracial kiss, interracial kiss on, kiss television. on television. Yeah. Well, wasn't Roddenberry uh, um, dating or having an affair with uh, Ohura, whoever the, the actress's yes. name was? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. 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 With her, like, with 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 uh, Major Barrett, uh, who later later became his wife, uh, with yeah. uh, the woman who played uh, Yoel <laughs> Rian. But yeah, he had a he had an affair with uh, ongoing. That uh, being uh, said, though, there there's another irony here, which is, and this is we're going further into red letter media territory, but the original Star Trek series, they were. They were well. They were written. They were actually written. Like there, there was the structure to the the series episodes was intelligently written, and it was yeah. held entirely by the writing alone. I mean, there wasn't a lot of you know uh, action, so to speak. The, the action was always very minimal. And when you look at modern television, uh, it's it feeds an even more degenerate as as politically spiritually culturally degenerate as star trek admittedly was and is uh it's still superior to everything you find on television now in terms of <laughs> the attention span it appeals to and the sophistication of the writing i will say this there was actually a genre of the original series shows they called them quote bottle unquote shows and a bottle show was a show an episode that took place completely within the ship where they never, you know, beamed out or took a shuttlecraft or whatever to go to some, you know, some other planet uh, and, so, right. and, and so forth. And, and, I mean, you had, you know, you had, you know, real science fiction writers, people like, you know, Ted Sturgeon, you know, for example, people like Harlan Ellison were involved in writing Star Trek episodes. So, yeah, the quality of the writing was good. And, you know, some, some, it, it holds, a lot of it holds up, uh, the original series holds up remarkably well. And uh, I think probably 10 or 12 years ago, they released, re-released, uh, the 79 original episodes with all the special effects remastered with modern technology. So the space scenes and so forth uh, look more realistic. And this speaks to something I did want to get to, which is, well, speculative fiction that we've been talking about is a very 20th century genre. The other great 20th century creative invention and I think the ultimate medium of not only the 20th century, but in my, in my opinion, the ultimate medium of, of Western civilization is in fact film, which is why it's such a great tragedy that our, that our racial enemies have hijacked the uh, movie machine. Uh, that being said, it, let's, let's, let's do this one. Uh, what would be the one work of speculative fiction that you think that you would most rather like to see adapted to uh, cinema? 
or you know extended television what have you wow that's a tough one and see the problem is that a, a lot of it is, is is basically can't be adapted right um, um it is difficult uh, it, it is difficult um you know if you're talking a miniseries or you know something like that um i i'm gonna i'm gonna defer to to other uh, to others uh, let me think about well, it i'll give you a I, chance I like, to think about it I would like to see a uh, a modern series on, uh, given the the providers who would probably take the contract might not be great, um, but a modern series on 1984. I think that that would be worthwhile. I don't think anyone's made a movie or a series on it in several decades. I think they made a movie. Sort of, the last one was like 30 years ago. Yeah, which, which is sort of shocking because it's still such a prominent novel and it gets reprinted every couple of years mm -hmm. it's still a part of the you know the high school curriculum for every high, public high school in america so and the only I, reason that happens is because the the the, the so-called teachers are so dumb that they don't understand the real political message behind uh, it they uh, think uh, it's an i was always, always surprised they even gave that to us in high school i mean i i knew you know even at that point like that there was a leftist bias and in all of it, you know, academia, public academia, especially. And it was, it just struck me as odd that they would even like allow you to look at something like this. Well, uh, if they well, were, this is what all those, the, this is what all those so-called dystopian novels never included, which was a classroom where children are to be instructed in reading dystopian novels and made to believe that these are happening Not elsewhere. Real. Yeah, exactly. Well, let me, let me say that if you remove the political context, like if, if you, let's say you don't tell, Students, uh, why did George Orwell write 1984? What what was his thought process going into writing this book? What were his political gripes? If you remove that context, and yeah, you can turn it into an anti-fascist um, uh, novel that sort of fulfills that anti-authoritarian genre that everyone is sort of um, subtly attracted to in their life at some point. If you remove the context, you can make it about anything, or you can make it about nothing. The you reality actually, was his work at the BBC and the emerging Cold War dialectic. Was what was the genesis for that? Right, it, it, you know, 1984 is really about uh, the um, the failure mode scenario for Soviet communism for worldwide Bolshevism. If you remove the political or the, um, yeah, the political context for why he wrote it, then, uh, of course, you can turn it into a novel about Donald Trump, which is, I think, very much what it's becoming. Um, so, I, of course, you know, it's it's kept on the curriculum for that purpose, but I think that, uh, you know, the redoing the, the book in a series um, or, in a, or in a film would actually be pretty good, and I, and I suspect that, if you allowed, um, maybe not an American production company to take it, but a European one or even potentially um, an Asian one, it might be more interesting. And it might not be you know, filled with political innuendo from the modern day. It might be a real just sort of beat for beat live action version of, of the work. Well, my, my choice would be I'm going to have to go with Lem again. Um, I would, of course, prefer that the late great Soviet director Andrei Tarkovsky was alive to make it, but I would like to see an adaptation of Lem's fiasco. Uh, and if 
listeners have not read that, that's probably the sci-fi book I would most highly recommend. Um, it's very underrated yeah. and I think hits all the beats of great science fiction. I, I guess after thinking about it, um, my choice would, would be a uh, miniseries, uh, you know, true to the actual novel of The Moat in God's Eye uh, by Pornell yeah. and Nivet because it's there's a, a good lot choice. there. And um, they, they actually, it, had, it has been optioned uh, a couple of times, but, you know, a lot of things get optioned in Hollywood and never actually get made. Um, and, and, but that would, I think, would be my choice if, if I were able to, to have my wish fulfilled. My backup, I'm, I'm going to cheat and throw a backup in. I would like to see an adaptation of Robert Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Yeah, that's a good, that's definitely a, uh, a good one as well. And so I'll, I'll throw in a backup as well. I'd like to see a, a series of, of Galaxy's Edge, actually. Ooh, a that's more. a good choice, man. I have one that, uh, again, is, you know, I, I, I don't read this stuff anymore, but that doesn't mean that I don't value it, just to be clear. Uh, but when I did read this stuff, a lot of this stuff was when I was younger. And so, you know, you guys can laugh, but basically understand I was I was a younger version of myself, much younger version of myself. So I used to read this series, um, book series that was put out. It's mainly a illustration heavy series, but it's extremely well thought through and creative. Uh, it was uh, called Dinotopia. Have you guys heard of it or seen it or read it? I've heard of it, but I never read it. I have not heard of this. It's by an author uh, named James Gurney. And I'm a very visual guy. I used to like to draw and all that stuff. And basically, it it was just so unbelievable. If you have a decent internet connection, which I don't at the moment because of the 4th of July spillover. But um, if you pull up just uh, on an image search of Dinotopia, you'll see the ridiculous detail and high quality of the guy's paintings. He's a painter and author. And so basically he portrayed this world of an island, sort of like Atlantis, that was lost uh, to the the world's knowledge. And this guy is an American from Boston. And he basically, he and his son, uh, shipwreck. And I think it's like in the 1800s or so. And they wind up on this island and they're basically, they're greeted by this like intelligent uh, dinosaur, not like Jurassic park where it's basically like this cynic, like this sinister version of a, a dinosaur world. It's basically they're, they're, they're incredibly intelligent and they live in harmony with uh, humans on the island. And yeah, there's, there's like, you know, dangerous dinosaurs and everything else, but the way they portray it, and there's a tweet actually to this effect. Uh, the way they portray it is it's basically, it's, it's not, futuristic per se but it's sort of like uh, archaeo futuristic for the time of maybe you know the 1800s and you know there's there's like brachiosaurus like you know delivering food to the people who live in the trees and then there's like these uh these waterfall cities where everything is basically just architecturally aesthetically spiritually uh economically in harmony it's just a it's it's an incredibly well balanced world and there was actually a miniseries made apparently i was just looking this up as i as it occurred to me but i'd never seen it and i'm trying to get a glimpse of like what it how well it was done but it was canceled because this type of stuff for whatever reason it doesn't seem to appeal to uh, a larger audience uh, but for me you know as i sort of get older and 
as I've kind of gone through several phases in my life where I've been much more pro technology and, and now I'm sort of seeing some of the deleterious effects on society as a whole or to the social fabric of society, I'm a little bit less pro technology. And so it, this type of world appeals to me because it doesn't run a petroleum. It doesn't require computers, uh, but it does require talented people, artistic people, creative people, industrious people, quality people with good character and everything like that. All the things that I value basically. And so it's a great portrayal of a, a very eco-friendly world, a very sort of socially balanced world uh, that manages to to make it work. And I would love to see a portrayal of that uh, on a, a longer series than the three three or so episodes they made of this of this particular universe. I would recommend the film Silent Running. Uh, on that note, if you have not seen it. Yeah, silent running. No, that, I was a, that was e- e- eco catastrophe film. Uh, actually, yep, yep. Uh, late, late, um, uh, late sixties or early. I think it was early seventies, like nineteen seventy two or something like that. Uh, um, it, well, it, it, it certainly it has, it has some of those themes as well. Absolutely. While we're at it, what are you guys' favorite cinematic? It doesn't. They don't have to be adaptations. But what are you guys' favorite series and? Cinematic speculative fiction. I like the um, the James Cameron works of just about just about everything he's done. Frankly, uh, his work with Terminator and the Aliens series, when he was involved, was spectacular. When he left, the the genius that he represents is clearly indicated by his absence. But th- those are my favorites. And to answer really, why, while you guys are thinking, I, I think that the, the sort of realism that he, he even though like he, he often would put like strong female characters, for example, into the roles, I actually found the portrayal of them very realistic. Like Sarah Connor and Ellen Ripley's portrayals as heroines was, to me, very compelling, as opposed to the modern superhero right. cape girl who's basically, it, she's, she's sort of like the opposite of a misogynist. Uh, she sort of hates men. But, you know, the Ellen Ripley character is falling into a role that she is doing her duty rather than doing it out of ego. It is basically I, to a, fulfill a societal role to protect the group or to a, to a daughter or something like that. It's a very noble thing. Uh, and, and also it's a somewhat cynical world that, you know, typically is, you know, these universes are set in that I also I also like. But uh, go ahead, Nick. I would love to see a Camille Paglia analysis. I, maybe it exists, but a Camille Paglia analysis of, of Alien, actually. Because Alien, I mean, Cameron himself ad- admitted that uh, Alien was... The, the central motif of Alien was the idea of rape. This would be perfect for Paglia. Yeah, but Ridley Scott, in fairness, did the first one. So you know, Sorry, Cameron's, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yes, of course. It was yeah. Scott. Uh, Cameron did Aliens. Okay. Right. Yes. Yeah. I, I I would I would second that um, you know and and you know I would add you know uh, Blade Runner uh, to that as well because you know very very much the same uh, um, also uh, Scott very similar yeah. just yeah dystopian uh, uh, vision look you know um, all of that all of that kind of stuff as well and, and uh, of something that's just a bit more recent um, I would have to say that uh, Looper Looper it was a pretty good. Uh, um, uh, time time travel uh, film. Uh, I don't know if you saw it. It had Bruce Willis in it. I did uh, the was, Ryan Johnson film. I did. I did yeah, see it. Yeah, uh, it was uh, mostly Tom, good. I did the aging prosthetics that they did for. I forget. I guess it was 
they they tried to make one of them look older or younger. I forget how that worked out, <laughs> but it was that was uh, pretty shoddy. But yeah, um, overall, um, it, was, it was pretty good. Yeah, and then the the Tom Cruise uh, similar cyclical uh, time travel movie uh, that they made. Uh, what was it called? Um, I'm having an Alzheimer's moment. Uh, it was it was made fairly recently. It was based on a Japanese uh, uh, anime. Oh yeah, uh, uh, the Japanese. It was a uh, kill them all or every, everything. All you need is kill. Yeah, all you need is kill. And uh, yeah, um, um, they changed the title. Uh, maybe somebody could look that up. That one was really uh, was, was was quite well done. And then the other one, um, which uh, may be controversial in some some corners, was uh, Zack Snyder's uh, adaptation of Alan Moore's Watchmen, um, which Watchmen itself was a, a in my view a fantastic um, uh, alternate history uh, graphic novel uh, that was then uh, adapted. I, I think very faithfully. Um, I thought he they, did they, a great they, job, but I would definitely recommend watching the extended director's cut version over the theatrical cut. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that as well. But, but I'll, I'll counter-signal that with Aliens. Uh, the, the theatrical cut of Aliens is infinitely superior, in my view, to the to the extended cut. Same thing with the Lord of the Rings uh, movies. But but in that case, yeah, the, the, the Watchmen extended cut um, is definitely better. Um, so that one was a, was a, a fantastic... Um, adaptation as well, and I was very concerned, you know, because I'm, you know, this is alternate history, and how are they going to introduce this stuff? And and I think that it was done very, very well. The plot changes that they made made sense to make it a little bit less complex, but, but without dumbing it down, right? You know, so that it still made sense in the, um, the cinematic um, um, realm. And the other one, uh, another one that may be controversial. Um, is uh, the the uh, of the you know they made the, this Prometheus movie right? It's supposed to be in the same uh, alien. Uh, universe. I actually liked that one. Well, apparently, I was yeah not you know. No, I didn't the, like that one so much. I I did really like the sequel, Covenant with the Wagner the sequel was the best. The, yeah, Covenant. Yeah, that yeah, 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 that is yeah. the best one. But but Prometheus. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was there were dumb there was dumb stuff. There were dumb plot points in Prometheus, but the aesthetic. Was, was was quite well done. A lot of the human interactions were quite well done. But Covenant was actually a fantastic movie, in my opinion. The I thing agree. is, yeah. you have to you have to have consumed the other content in order to really appreciate it, right? If you just come into Covenant cold, it's just not going to be that uh, that great. But th- they did a great job with that, in my opinion. Throughout any more, I have it. I mean, this is our we we've gone well over the deep end as far as. Uh, Ship posting and talking, nerding out on sci-fi. So this is, feel free to <laughs> throw out whatever else you got. Well, I, I you know, you know, the the main thing is that um, uh, we we keep uh, getting closer and closer and closer to the day where at some point uh, the technology will be there that we're able to create, you know, relatively realistic looking, um, you know, cinema. Um, um, on the desktop, and of course, there's been the machinima stuff, like you know, Red versus Blue, which was a lot of fun. That was a, a satirical series that people, um, you know, they yeah, recorded of, of themselves Halo. playing yeah. Halo. You know, Halo, right? I'm not, um, from, from was it Halo? Yeah, it was Halo. Yeah, it was Halo. Um, uh, from Microsoft, which was a, you know hilarious um, uh, series, and you know, a lot of the 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 games are becoming. Um, more cinematic in scope, and you know the, the problem is that this stuff can become so seductive that you lose yourself. 
And that's the real danger um, with some of it is that it can, 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 can become such a time sink that it diverts you from uh, reading serious things and, and, and doing serious things uh, in your own life. And so uh, avoiding the, the seduction of the internet of the entertainment uh, technology and letting it take up too much of your life is is a a serious serious uh, well, I have I've a, been kind of a funny and in all due respect to the person who was doing this uh, when we were both younger um, he's much different now but um, buddy of mine mutual friend of ours went over to this individual's house one Saturday and it was like hey man you want to go out and do this or that and he uh, he was really into this game uh, called EverQuest. Uh, it was a one of the sure. earlier. Yeah, it was an massive, MMORPG, right? Yeah, early exactly. late nineties, early two thousands, right? Yeah, and this was right when broadband was coming out, where you can kind of do this type of thing, and it was pretty pretty new concept where you were interacting with all these actual other people that you never met in real life uh, in this one virtual shared world. So interesting concept, right? But incredibly immersive. And he goes over there, and he's like, yeah, the uh, name omitted uh, was uh, sitting in his chair in a sleeping bag, presumably because he had stayed up the entire night playing this one game. And uh, I I was like, that image just stuck with me. I never even saw it, but it was just like I'm imagining what it was like. And I'm like, <laughs> like, good Lord. I would, you know, this is one of the reasons I stopped playing, you know, a lot of games. And, we, and we, we, we've all read the stories, too, about, like, gamers mainly, like, in South Korea. Yeah, in Korea. Japan, <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah, who, who play in the uh, uh, the cafes and, and end up, you know, um, dying, I guess, of, you know, um, uh, for, you know, deep vein thrombosis, you know, blood clots or something. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, you have to you have to be careful um, um, with it. But, you know, I, I think at some point uh, the technology will be there that will allow – um, you know, desktop production, that kind of thing. But of course, the problem is that, you know, the, I think the, the term of art people are using these days is, quote, deep fake, unquote, you know, to that the ability to forge, you know, uh, realistic looking video and so forth is, is becoming more common. And there's a lot of societal and uh, political implications for that kind of thing. But, you know, the written word um, is, 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 you know, it, it, you know I, I would trade away all the films if I had to, you know, to keep the written word if, that, if I were confronted with that choice. But uh, it's easier today uh, than it ever has been uh, for folks to, to, to write and to publish and so on. And there is such a fund of, uh, of uh, inspiration uh, that is out there that um, I believe that uh, we're going to see uh, more and more quality work uh, show up that, that actually has a message that you know that, that actually is thought provoking. And the thing that I'm still waiting for that has never really materialized is to take the idea of the written word in electronic form to the next level. Um, this is something that a number of the more technologically savvy. Uh, established uh, authors of speculative fiction were interested in is, you know, in interactive book, interactive fiction, right? And there have been some clunky attempts um, at these, ty uh, these types of things um, uh, going back decades. But at some point, I believe that we're going to see the technology, the authoring technology and the, the, the distribution and the, the um, display and reading technology um, get to the point where you can actually have a, a smoother uh, um, integration of, of a multimedia type of experience in an electronic form. And I think that there are a lot of uh, 
possibilities for that, but we're, we're, we're still not there yet. The greatest science fiction film ever made was also the greatest Soviet film ever made, and that was, again, the adaptation of Lem, Solaris, followed, of course, by the second Planet of the Apes movie where the world is annihilated <laughs> beneath the Planet of the Apes. Those are probably my two favorites. <laughs> Yeah, did you guys see uh, the recent remakes of the Planet of the Apes? Movies? I did, man. I was a James Franco. I grew up on no. the Planet of the Apes movies. I watched, I, I I watched all five of those movies more times than I care to admit, which was always a thing I'd noticed. And it was in Dick's uh, uh, Scanner Tarkley that was a like a subplot, like his girlfriend who was also narking on him was trying to get him to go to the drive-in to watch the Planet of the Apes movies with him. Uh, but yeah, I, I did watch them. Uh, it was interesting because the third one was actually a adaptation of uh, the Old Testament. If you noticed that, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, it was it was Exodus specifically, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. It was the Exodus story. That's exactly right. Yeah, uh, I mean, like, oftentimes, you, you, I mean, you see these old texts get adapted over and over again, but it was a very heavy-handed version of it. I mean, you saw very explicit allegory, but yeah, I watched them. They were all right. I, um, I miss the, what's his name, Roddy McDowell. I, mi- I miss McDowell and the Ape Suits yeah. and everything. Those, those movies were great, man. All the originals will never be surpassed. Um, speaking yeah. of Phil Dick, uh, by the way, uh, there's uh, one, one of uh, an author who's done some good stuff uh, relatively recently. His name is Daryl, D-A-R-Y-L, Gregory. And he wrote uh, an alternate history uh, um, novel. We haven't talked much about alternate history in this conversation, but it's called Pandemonium. And um, both Phil Dick and uh, Valdis itself are characters um, in this novel, Pandemonium, uh, by Daryl Gregory. I, I recommend it highly. It's a lot of fun, especially for somebody who's a Philip K. Dick fan. I'll check that out. There's actually a handful of Philip K. Dick adaptations. You know, you would think reading Philip K. Dick that it was impossible to adapt Philip K. Dick. However, there's some good ones that went under the radar. I mean, they're B-movies for the most part, but there was an adaptation of... Uh, one of his short stories called something the third kind and the film had like, I think Peter Weller in it and it was called screamers. I, I think that screamers was, was a great film. was pretty screamers good. Was fun. Yeah. A lot of fun. I yeah, you liked, you I saw didn't that, actually yeah. know that that was a Philip K. Dick. Uh, yeah. It was something of the third kind was the, was the short story. Uh, it's a spoiler to explain what that means, but I, I recommend that as well as a relatively recent adaptation that's kind of a hodgepodge of various dick stuff, but it's called Radio Free Album, which I thought was good. I liked it. They, I didn't know that. They, is, that is that a film? Did it a, did it a film? Yeah, it was a film. Yeah. Well, it was a, that's specifically a dick work. However, the film itself has a bunch of elements from all kinds of uh, PKD material and biography and stuff. The, the, the film is not a direct adaptation, but yeah, I thought it was okay. You know, it was good. We're still talking about science fiction films, right? Yeah. So I, I liked um, Stalker. I think it's a pretty good science fiction movie. I saw it um, maybe six years ago, and I've rewatched it a few times since. Watched it. I tried to watch it with uh, a, a girl I was dating once, and that was just a mistake, a, a disaster. 
Um, mistake, dude. I I really really liked um, uh, the both Blade Runner films, the uh, one with Harrison Ford and the most recent one with um, Ryan Gosling. I think yeah. those are both really really well done movies. I, there's actually a book. I got for my dad because he's a huge fan of the original Blade Runner movie, um, and he was the one who introduced it to me when I was a teenager. He has the the Ridley Scott director's cut. Not not then. It's not the. I know there's like eight versions. I've only seen maybe two or three of them. <laughs> I've um, se- I've seen them all. You have the theatrical cut, the director's cut, and the final cut. Well, there's another cut that has uh, the Harrison Ford. Like noir voiceover, apparently that I've never. That was the theatrical. That was the theatrical theatrical cut. Was the the voiceover cut? Ah, okay, okay. So, anyways, I watched the director's cut, um, and I I really liked the this new Blade Runner. I thought it was really well done. Really, to be honest, bro, I didn't I didn't like it. Uh, I thought I thought it had beautiful cinematography, but there was nothing in the actual script that I liked. I, I didn't think. I mean, I, I like that Cuban babe. I mean, everyone likes that Cuban babe. <laughs> but like beyond that, I, shit, man. I I just I was like, where is where is the meat here? Like, what's the point of any of this? Especially didn't like Harrison Ford getting shoehorned in. I didn't think Jared Leto's character had any value. Uh, I could go on, but I, I thought it was a beautifully shot film. But beyond that, I I just didn't care for it. I was also, really disappointed. I've also really enjoyed. Um, I think it's the only Netflix series that I have actually cared to watch. Netflix produced, although it's German. Uh, Dark Dark is uh, has been really really interesting to watch. Uh, I really enjoyed, um, you know, sitting down, watching an episode or two at a time. Um, it gives me an opportunity to, uh, you know, keep practicing my German, and it. Um, it's one of the more uh, subtly and cleverly written pieces of, I guess, cinema that I've consumed in a while. I don't really watch a lot of movies anymore. Um, but I, I think it's very interesting. It's very methodical. Um, the characters speak with a lot of um, real weight. Nothing is sort of ephemeral. There's no wasted dialogue. There's no wasted time. Everyone is very direct. Everyone is very... Um, very real. There's not really a sense that they're acting. It's more of a, of a sense that this is just the reality that uh, the situation. You you almost feel like it's you know becoming part of your reality at a certain level. It's it's, a, it's I think it's a really good show. Um, so I, you know, I don't know. I I really did not get into science fiction as much as a kid or as a teenager. But uh, those those would be some things that I I think have been well done in terms of science fiction and, and cinema. Oh, I forgot to mention uh, John Carpenter's Dark Star. It's one of my favorites. Dark Star was a fantastic, and, and also um, his uh, adaptation of The Thing, right? Of you know who goes oh, there. The... Of course, yeah. As well as his Lovecraftian film, uh, Mouth of Madness, I think it was called. Mouth of Madness. That's right. Yeah, uh, he, he did a good job with that. There are three. Just re- I know we're, we're we're getting into the close here. There are three films. Really, I just wanted to plug. For folks that may not have had a chance to see them, uh, the first one is a film called Outland. Uh, it's from 1981. Uh, it's essentially it's Sean Connery is in this film. It's directed by Peter Hyams. It's kind of a uh, sheriff in space um, kind of film, and it has that same look 
like Blade Runner and the Alien films do. Like it feels like it's in that same, you know, Wayland Utani um, kind of universe. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, call, called called Outland. Um, the second one that I wanted to um, to uh, plump was a film called Pandorum. P A N. That movie was good. Yeah. That's the one about the long space travel where people. Yeah. Don't 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 spoil it. But but yeah. but yeah, yeah. Uh, just trust us. Uh, it's a it's a great film, and you, again, you don't have to be a genre nerd um, to to enjoy this film. Uh, it's really really good. It was uh, on a small budget. It has uh, Dennis Quaid, uh, if I remember correctly, um, uh, was 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 actually um, in that film. It was made in two thousand and nine, and then the third one was uh, also a, a minor film that was uh, came out in two thousand eight two thousand nine. It's called Moon. Um, oh, very uh, good. Was great. With very Sam good Rockwell. Movie. Yep. Yeah. That's that was excellent. Yeah. I'll, pl- has, I'll plug one more, Rock. too. I'll plug a film by, unfortunately, a Jewish director, but I loved it when I was a kid, and I, I still think it's great. It was t- it's like late 70s film called Time After Time, which kind of runs the gambit of a lot of what we've been talking about. Yeah. Yeah, it has it has its time travel and and uh, that kind of uh, that kind of element in it. Yeah, it was actually a, a a decent film as well. So those are some some kind of gems that uh, folks might have missed if they're not really uh, fans of the genre. But they're really good. They're they're still uh, Apollo eighteen, uh, which is uh, in the last few years. Apollo eighteen uh, uh, was a, a fun film. Thirteen uh, or eighteen? I don't 18. remember. 18, eighteen coming out. Uh, which was, yeah, it's called Apollo 18. Okay. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a lot of fun as well. Again, relatively small budget, but they did a, a, a great job with it. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of these genre, you know, science fiction, speculative fiction, and to, to lesser fantasy films that, are, uh, that come out from time to time uh, that are a lot of fun. And so those four or five that we just reeled off, I'd highly recommend commend to anyone you don't have to be a, a genre nerd to to enjoy those and they might uh, uh take you to some uh, additional additional actors and directors and and so forth that you enjoy as well and unfortunately the great you know aryan sci-fi has yet to be made but well we will hold out perhaps it will be well, one, I, i'll give you a bonus recommendation of a book um it's called uh the iron dream by norman Spindle. oh yes that don't 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 look it up don't don't spoil it for yourself just just get it and read it it's a lot of fun oh and oh okay still gonna throw out another one this is this one's borderline but francis ford coppola i i remember uh, i took a fucking woman to this i hope she's not listening uh back in the day but it came out but it was an adaptation the book it was called Youth After Youth was the, it was one of the later films that Coppola made. It was adapted from a book that was written. It was a Romanian novel, and the writer himself was an Iron Guard uh, sympathizer. Uh, wow, Coppola I, I purges a lot of that in the film, and he kind of inverts it. But uh, the film's still good. It has Tim Roth in it, and uh, highly recommend that one. Youth After Youth. Youth After huh? Youth. Thank you. I'll, I'll I'll be be happy to see that one for sure. All right. Well, we have uh, shit posted about science fiction for <laughs> I suppose long enough, and I hope you guys have related or enjoyed. I'm sure we lost plenty of you in the process. That's all right. 
Uh, thanks to everybody for sticking with us after our recent gassing from YouTube. So uh, it's it's been a pleasure, and uh, we'll be back next week with some more traditional content. I hope everyone has a good week. Oh, I, I really enjoyed this, and just thank you all for getting having me on the program. I think I told you guys before, you know, when 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 uh, you uh, let me uh, appear on the show, it's kind of like uh, you know you're at a concert with your favorite band, and they ask you to come up and jam on the stage. So it's it's always an honor and a privilege, and, and a lot of fun, and. Uh, hopefully some folks will, will find uh, some of the recommendations and things we talked about um, to be interesting. And um, it's certainly something that as a cultural phenomenon, if nothing else, I think that you know, speculative fiction has become so influ influential in our society, including in, in, in this, the realm of politics, that even if you're not interested in it as a genre uh, that you care about yourself, um, being aware of it and so some of the dominant tropes and how it influences uh, people's thinking, I think, is definitely uh, worth looking into, if nothing else. Well, and Ethnarch's recommendation from the beginning as to somebody who's not especially interested in the genre would have been uh, Niven and Parnell's uh, Mode in God's Eyes, all right? That's right, and uh, uh, it, it's something that that is uh, it, it's a very human book, but not in a, an icky gooey, you know, new agey way. So it's, it's a very realistic book that um, uh, has has a storyline and a plot and characters to whom um, you can relate, and it talks about a future, it describes a future uh, that is something that I believe is worth uh, considering when we think about you know the kind of future that we're trying to build for ourselves and our progeny. Let's have some music in here, Boiler. Sure thing. I may sunshine down, but I see only one. Trying to think I'm over you. I find I've just begun. The years move faster than the days. There's no more in the light. Those desert skies, your cool touch in the night. Thanks in Arizona, blue warm wind through your hair. My body flies, the galaxies, my heart longs to be there. Thanks in Arizona, the same stars in the sky. But they seem so much kinder when we watch them, you and I. Yeah.